Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works in context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts. My name is Cody. My name is Luke. And I'm Will. And we are back to finish our discussion of Chapter 9 that we would have started last week. The chapter was just sort of too packed full of things and ideas to to fit into one episode so we've decided to to split it in half and last episode in case you did not listen to it for one reason or another but are listening to this half uh covers some more backstory with with dl and the beginning of her relationship with takeshi as well as the i'll say interesting surroundings that takeshi came from but as for the second half of this chapter, Will, do you have a summary for us? I do. So picking up roughly where we left off. DL has just fled. Takeshi has just realized that, well, maybe something wasn't quite right about this whole uh, rendezvous that he was placed into. But apparently the vibrating palm requires deep familiarity with the target. So fortunately, after DL has fled, he seems to have more time than most. Plenty of time to track her down to Konoichi once again, where she's run to for advice. After a thorough reprimand from who but Sister Rochelle, she, she repledges herself to the sisterhood. Just in time for Takeshi to arrive, uh, to be semi-post... <clears throat> Got the throat clear. Be semi-posthumously revived with a by-then-renowned Punkutron machine. Noting a similarity between the two, unintended victim and unwanted assailant, Sister Rochelle binds them together, both karmic retribution for DL and amortized payment for the services rendered for Takeshi. DL insists on only one clause, no sex, which turns out to make up most of Takeshi's pound of flesh. Out driving soon after, they settle on lunching at a barbecue joint, where they become acquainted with the phenomenon of Thanatoya. Fumimoto, the clever businessman, notes the shared root cause of the Thanatoy way of life, karmic injustice resulting in posthumous life. A sort of inversion of Fumimoto's post-dated living, nearly all seeking eternal rest via some version of resentment. This presents an excellent opportunity for the duo to start performing adjustments, somehow hoping beyond hope to resuscitate the already gone. Soon after opening shop, they make close acquaintance with Blood and Vato of Blood and Vato Towing, as two of the only businesses willing to work for the Thanatoid populace. The mutual feeling between them seems to be one of reserved amusement. We're further introduced to Blood and Vato's less-known partner, Theon Tran, who inspires an odd degree of fear and subservience in the front men, and how she's introduced to them. And as, they, as the towers circulate the coastal stretch, they develop some intuitive connection to the land, one which apparently leads to their obsession with Sasquatch. The relevant part to Prairie comes with the appearance of Weed Atman on the side of the road. Once the leader of the revolutionary sect of cinematography that Fernesi and DL had helped to build, now reduced to Thanatoya, Weed wanted his grievance with the traitor settled. It's only then that Prairie understood 
her mother's complicity in Brock Vaughn's machinations. To distract herself, Prairie turns to the seemingly haunted Variety Loaf deep in the back of the freezer. It literally glows. And as the depths of debate this inspires begin to dawn on her, she can only start to wish for a different life when DL takes her aside and says it's time to leave. And so all three of them get in the back of her coupe and ride off. Thank you, Will. Um, starting as we always do with overall thoughts on the chapter, what did we think of the second half of chapter nine? I don't want to say it's darker because there was certainly dark elements in, in the first half, but I think there's more of a dark undertone that kind of seeps through the, the second half, um, especially when you get into the 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 sort of Vietnam illusions and, and all that, that that kind of permeate the, especially the back half of this half of the ch- chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, there are some absolutely hilarious parts in here as well. Um, Blood and Vato are always um, good for providing some comedic relief. Um, so that's always a welcome break from everything. And there's also a lot of, I, I think, well, not, maybe not a lot of, but the, the sort of mysticism element um, that that Penchon brings into a lot of his work comes in here with the the Uruk and the the Woj or Wogue. I'm not sure how to pronounce that properly, but um, um, I I like. I think I said last time that I like the second half of this chapter more than the first, and I I think I still stand by that. Um, I like the mm. chapter as a whole a lot, but um, I think between the two halves, I probably do enjoy the second half a little bit more. It's a little weirder, but I I do like weird so. <laughs> Luke, Will, what did you guys think? Yeah, I, I like the back half of this chapter a lot. Um, overall, this chapter is, you know, one of my favorites, like I said last week. Um, you know, all the stuff with the Punky Tron is pretty funny. Um, the stuff <laughs> yeah. about Takeshi um, choosing which which music to, to listen to while he's... Um, being worked on is is you know really funny the the description of or the kind of different um cds and stuff i mean some of our younger listeners might not um be aware of you know the kind of bargain bin cd and cassette tape uh <laughs> things that were in like dollar stores and yeah. in, in at least up until <laughs> the 90s it's definitely treasure a thing. yeah um I think I've seen them even into the 2000s and even into the 2010s. I haven't seen them oh, yeah. in a oh, while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a thing. Uh, so that's all pretty funny. Uh, the ending of the chapter is super cinematic. Um, it definitely kind of reminded me of you know, different kind of war movies and stuff with them kind of moving through the the compound hur- hurriedly and Takeshi stealing st- the wine and them going down the, the freight elevator. Um, I can't think of a specific movie that it seems to be referencing, but it does seem to be pretty cinematic to me. Um, and yeah, I mean, all of as I said last week, you know, Takeshi constantly taking all the drugs and everything is is just is just pretty funny. Um, we do get the Babies of Wackiness TV show, um, which does seem to be a kind of a commentary on cable television in America and how there's like an endless amount of television content being put out in an endless endless amount of TV channels, um, which I guess goes back even to the 80s, which I wasn't necessarily aware of. Um, but yeah, this chapter is really fun. Uh, I really like this chapter. Yeah, I, I, I really 
I I find this half of the chapter, as my co-hosts are well aware, uh, baffling, but enchantingly so. I, I think it's really... It's got some of the densest content of the entire book, if I remember correctly. And it's these really incredibly depressing ways of conceiving of collective trauma that America and the world had gone through in the previous decades. Right up next to, you know, Takeshi just down in fistfuls of speed and barbiturates, <laughs> right next to Vato and Blood, like, slowly becoming believers in Sasquatch. It, it, there's a lot going on here, and most of it's very goofy, but when you break down the goofiness, it, it really is very somber to me. Uh, I, I, I like it, reading through it, but it always leaves this, uh, always, it, it leaves this kind of heavy metallic taste in my mouth that's a pretty good pretty good description of kind of how that portion of the of the chapter feels that's for sure mm -hmm. I, I i also enjoy the second half of this chapter i think i like the first half more i i just i really like the way that pinchon lays out the sequence of events in the first half and how you kind of witness all of the information from DL's point of view and then it swaps over to the to the Godzilla footprint scene and then slowly you understand why he he reset to there and how the two sort of are gonna intertwine I think that the the structural aspects of how he lays out the first half of the chapter make me enjoy it more but there is certainly a, a lot to to love in the second chapter and certainly you know a lot to talk about albeit in I would say maybe a different way than the first half but I, they're 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 both great they're they're both absolutely great. I I do find it interesting that it is all one chapter because I don't know if anyone mentioned it in last week's episode, but it it does feel like there is a natural stopping point halfway through where you know the, it didn't it didn't necessarily have to continue into the same chapter, but um, I'm sure I'm sure Pinchon had a good reason for that. I doubt that he does anything for no reason. Looking at the the actual sort of procedural events of the chapter, um, I would say that probably the first funny moment that stands out in the in this section for me is Takeshi just downing pills on an airplane yeah. to the point where the person he's been sat next to is is concerned that he's going to kill himself. Not necessarily seemingly from a standpoint of like you know a human level, but just like please don't do that when I'm the one who has to sit next to you and probably yeah. talk, talk to like. <laughs> <laughs> this the stewardess about it i have an unspoken responsibility for your safety right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um eventually takeshi lands in in san francisco and gets himself checked out uh i i i love that whole scene where they're they're checking like his heart meridians and the 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 holes in his suit um and trying to sort of diagnose what may have happened to him in in one way or another to to explain like what he needs to do next i think that that's such a an interesting scene cody you have it in here about blending fantasy into reality which is very yeah. much uh, a good way to describe that yeah it's something we talked about last week too um that you know something that would seem on paper as as silly as you know the, the vibrating hand of death or, or the ninja death touch or whatever you want to call it um but here it's you know 
it's treated in such a way that it's presented as it, it is a thing. It maybe this really did happen, and it's 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 done with such a a, a um my brain today. <laughs> it's it's done in such a way that it it doesn't come off as being uh, over the top necessarily. It's it's done with just the right amount of um of realism to where it works. You know, we all know as a reader that obviously it's not a thing, but it it plays into the story in such a way that it 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 is very believable and it it serves the story and it does it doesn't feel ham-fisted, it doesn't feel forced in. It just feels like yeah, she really did that to him and and here's the impact of it. And now he's, you know, we're seeing the physicality of what was done. It's kind of like the reverse of The Exorcist, where so much of that movie starts with a bunch of doctors not knowing what's wrong with Reagan, mm-hmm. whereas he's able to go to a doctor and like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. You, just, you just got attacked by the vibrating palm. Yeah, yeah. we've got a calculator for that, you yeah. good. <laughs> um, what was the, the Gravity's Rainbow connection that you, you had potentially seen with his character? Oh, that was what we talked about a while back with him being the the kamikaze pilot in Gravity's Rainbow having the same name. Oh, right. Um, I don't know if I'm not. I, I'm not trying to say it's that's the same person. I don't know if the timelines would add up because I don't know. Are we told how old Takeshi is at this point? I don't think so. No, but they, it is said that he was a kamikaze, or at least he yeah, seems to have been. It yeah, it's 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 in there, but it's not it's not a direct enough connection for me to say like oh yeah that's you know definitely the same character it wouldn't surprise me knowing Pinchon's uh you know put other characters into other books at certain times mm-hmm. um so it's it's one of those implied things but i don't think there's a strong enough case to be made either way necessarily yeah i think uh kamikaze pilots were typically pretty young um yeah i think so which you would you would think logically at least you know in in the west that they would be older just because you know, they would maybe be, you know, like, I mean, really old or something, but um, I think because they, they had less uh, family attachments and stuff that they were typically pretty young. Um, I want to say, I remember that from studying world war two in college. It was also considered just to be like a very, a thing of very high honor to do. Like parents would bring their kids down to sign up for that, like specific division of, of mm-hmm. the Imperial air force, which is, yeah, to the to Western mindset is pretty is pretty crazy to think about, but they they believed they were embodying the same winds that had protected the Japanese I, islands from you know the Mongols and so many other people um, yeah. prior to then. So and and just for for reference for anyone listening who didn't catch it, maybe the the paragraph is on page one seventy five. It says she was referring to what he had a way of calling his quote interesting work with airplanes during World War II. Though, to be frank, she also continued, I can't imagine you in anybody's Air Force, let alone the kamikaze, who, I understand from the history books, were fairly picky about who flew for him. So, it's it's one of those things I think is probably done that way just to play with the reader a little bit, just have us wondering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, f- fundamentally, it jumping jumping to the Gravity's Rainbow connection, I think it's hard to say whether Takeshi is a character character or if he is a he's a character in in the world of the book right it, it, yeah it's very hard to tell just reading the novel and so it's tempting to let this representation of a, the same 
broad strokes character. Same name, same rough history, you know. It's tempting to say that that's an indication one way or the other, but honestly, I, I find it more obfuscating than anything else. <laughs> it, it, it really it makes me want to, like, think more about, okay, what is, what is breaking down in that section of that book? And then what is, what is being built on in this section of this book? Because either way, it seems like they cannot both hold, like, a realist value within the stories. Well, if anything else, too, I mean, it, it seems that potentially Pinchon started from a perspective of, okay, I have this character who, even though this woman basically killed him, he's still very attracted to and is sort of like chasing around and constantly wanting to, to sleep with her again. Maybe he just is very fixated on his own death. Oh, maybe he used to be a kamikaze pilot for the same reason. And then maybe maybe that was how he worked backwards because I find that that's that that's very interesting is that he 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 was a kamikaze pilot obviously not a very good one um, given that he is still alive in 1984 but there is several mentions of him continuing especially after he finally reaches you know the the ninjet uh, retreat and is reunited with with DL there's several mentions of the fact that he is just inexorably still attracted to her. And it always mentions in those sentences the fact that he shouldn't be because she's killed him or he shouldn't be mm-hmm. because he doesn't understand why he would be. So there there seems to be something there about Takeshi flirting with his own death or, or interested in his own death um, in a very unique way, which obviously wraps around with their conversation with the Thanatoid at the barbecue restaurant, which we'll eventually get to. But... Um, for now, uh, what about the, the scene where he shows back up at the retreat and they're the song that he sings and the, uh, the, the, the punkutron, what did, what did we think of these, the, this, this chunk? I think it's notable that the thanatoids are defined by their, not, not in, inherently defined by this, but the major characteristic of them is their obsession with television. Mm-hmm. And then you have the inverted thanatoid in the form of uh, Takeshi just singing this song that is entirely about like living one's life as though it were an excerpt from a film. <laughs> yeah. While also doing what appears to be like a chorus line kick towards this woman that he's become <laughs> obsessed with. Here's exactly. some real showmanship that you can put on here. Yeah. <laughs> To the point of confusing all of the all of the other members of this commune. <laughs> yeah. As far yeah. as the punkutron, I I just the idea of it alone, like if you just really can kind of conceptualize what this is, uh, it's absolutely hilarious. And I do I, I love the little throwaway line about um the the detractors included the ever vigilant FDA, one step ahead of whom the Punkutron's producers had uh, so far just managed to keep. Like with all there, every time there's some shady, uh, like medicine, quote unquote medicine or, or therapy or something like that, that really pushes the, the limitations of the, of, of, or the definitions of the word, uh, you know, therapy or, or treatment or whatever. It always seems like their, their secondary goal is making sure they can skirt around whatever FDA regulations would hamper them from doing what they're doing. Um, 
so I, I love that that's in here. But I also I I think my favorite thing is the the as Luke mentioned earlier, uh, the the musical selections that are available for accompaniment while the punky drone is working, <laughs> um, which includes the uh, all regimental bagpipes play primetime favorites or uh, Taiwanese healthy brain aerobics. <laughs> Or my my favorite is the chipmunks sing Marvin Hamlish. That one I was yeah. I had to stop reading for a second. I was laughing so hard. The chipmunks one really got me too. It is it is the one that is the obvious choice if you're going to be put into this position. Either that or the regimented bagpipes, obviously. Yeah, well, you you think that like you know if if this punkytron involves like like your chi flow and all this different stuff that you'd want like something a little bit more. I don't that the the music you'd be listening to would be a little bit more important and then it'd be more like new agey or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I I do find it really funny. It just doesn't really seem to and I also really like that the it seems to be implied that all the CDs and tapes were like shoplifted. Yeah. Um <laughs> but you think that like what music you're listening to would be a little bit more important in terms of like centering yourself and different stuff. Um but yeah. So we we have to kind of assume regarding the uh the healthy brain aerobics from taiwan but the all regimental bagpipes and the chipmunks sing marvin hamlish is it's all like these choral of very high pitch reedy noises mm-hmm. so maybe there is something to it <laughs> maybe maybe they have to balance it it's some kind of a balancing with uh brainwave activity or something when you when you listen to something like that you have to i don't know you need a i also love that it's like a 10 page list of this kind of stuff which i kind of wish we had more of but yeah pinch on just give us all 10 pages of these yeah man <laughs> these tracks i know he there... wrote it i know he wrote 10 pages of this kind of stuff oh yeah definitely just like he had all those those extra limericks lying around that yeah, yeah. <laughs> he never gave us these are the deep cuts we need yeah that's the kind of stuff that's going to be in his archive there there is i mean there is a lot of funny stuff with music in this latter half of the chapter too because when dl explains to him the punishments um or the penance that she will have to do if she breaks the uh-huh. the, the year-long protectorate clause that stuff had me just yeah. dying with laughter just yeah <laughs> the, 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 of the thousand broadway show tunes yeah the andrew lloyd weber chamber of we never find out we never find out we never find out because takeshi <laughs> stops her but lord almighty could the the chamber of andrew lloyd weber not be anything good yeah that's for sure yeah i i i, I don't think that i could endure a thousand show tunes played back to back i <laughs> I definitely think that would drive me insane. That would be my unraveling for sure. <laughs> I was definitely thinking they were layered on top of each other. Oh, oh that's almost worse. That would, I feel like that would be worse if you Maybe just had to just be pink noise. I mean, at, at a certain point, yeah, you lose any kind of structure or coherence to what's yeah, being yeah, played yeah. at you for sure. And that number has got to be far less than a thousand. I'd imagine. Um, so yeah, we, we figure out that the two of them are going to have to, to, to go through the world together for a year and a day in hopes that that makes up for, for the, the, I don't even know, ill-fated tete-a-tete from the, the earlier half of this chapter, I guess is maybe how I describe it. And there's this interesting 
scene um sort of the night before they leave the ninja commune where one of the other members sneaks into Takeshi's room and has sort of this this heart to heart conversation about um about DL and and sort of where she's at in life at that point. Does anyone have any thoughts that they wanted to add to to that about that conversation? So I I would like to say that I I find it kind of I think that yes, the obviously it's about DL. But I think that this is, you know, on on some level a Finchin kind of trying to summarize a, a very popular strain of thought in feminism in the 80s. That this kind of reworking of original sin to a feature on I guess one way to put it is the Y chromosome. Mm-hmm. Um and on the other hand, I also think that it's way too it fits way too well with the actual like world that this book is working in for me to think that it's some kind of ironic statement of it. It does seem in line with my my very nearly totally ironic reading of Gravity's Rainbow, which I'm not going to get into. But I think, no, no, not right now. No, it's you know it's a whole other book, Kate. We can't do that. <laughs> podcast within a podcast. I'll, just to say that you know, I think that there's a lot of you know, there's this the sheer quantity of masculinity in that book is uh, ridiculous, and I think by intention. And I think that that kind of summary of history is probably somewhat closer to Pynchon's worldview than than the traditionally assumed one. That's yeah. That's a that's a fair point. I could definitely see where you're coming from with that. Mm-hmm. I I think the 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 dropping of Lilith and Eve and Adam is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. I mean, a obviously for all the, the reasons Will just said, but also b he does change the Lilith story from what is out in like the the real world, which I find interesting. Um, I don't know how like widely known some of this stuff is, but there are a lot of different. There are a lot of different like interpretations of Lilith. There are a lot of different allusions to a Lilith-like figure from different cultural histories. It isn't just something that exists within like the Hebrew Bible. Um, there's things that are from the you know the the Akkadian language. There are things from Mesopotamian mythology, you know, from the Gilgamesh cycle, and from different sort of archaeological finds that kind of point towards a similar figure but like the for for those of our listeners who don't know much about this story it's this idea in jewish folk folklore primarily within the the babylonian talmud that basically says that lilith was adam's first wife and was formed out of the same clay that adam himself was so obviously that's very different from the the actual reading that most people are going to have from reading Genesis, where Adam's wife is Eve and is formed out of a, a rib of Adam. And from there, it is said that sort of Lilith is almost like a demon and is the, the mother of Adam's demonic children. She essentially is banished from the Garden of Eden for not complying with or actually following the sort of dictates of the Hebrew God as it relates to women obeying men and sort of the familial structure. Um, 
There's some belief that she may have been mentioned in the book of Isaiah, uh, but after, you know, those particular translations have kind of not fully borne out, she's mostly just referenced in, in secondary literature, like the Talmud. Um, she's mentioned in Erevin 100b, Nidda 24b, Shabbat 151b, and Bava Batra 73a. And it, it's, she's also like a figure in Jewish... Um, uh, like mysticism, the Zohar is is the the big book for that, and we've talked about that in relation to to Kabbalah before. But I I think it's interesting that it's changed a little bit from what the storyline within those texts is to what it is here in in the actual book. And I think that Will kind of is explaining probably why Pinchon makes that change. But just for the the edification of the listeners, um, yeah, she is essentially Adam's first wife within. Jewish folklore and that she's banished from the garden for giving birth to a demonic children and also be not obeying Adam. And she believed in particular that she was on like the same level as Adam. She believed that she should be treated the same way as man should. So Lilith also does have this feminist connection because she was inherently looking for equality, which within the Hebrew framework is not something that, that women should be looking for, especially not during that period. Uh, David Cowart in his in his book uh, The Dark Passages of History uh, does get into he 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 names DL as Lilith, uh, Fernesi as Eve, uh, I think Weed as Adam and Brock as the serpent in that book and his chapter on Vineland, which is a chapter on the three California novels. Um, I remember whenever I was reading it, it, it occurred to me that he doesn't really necessarily explain the significance of that or why he thinks that, but it is something that he, that's an aspect of the, of the story that he explores in that book. If anyone's interested in reading more. Well, I guess we should maybe just go through the actual quote here. There's probably some uh, positivity to be brought of that. Cody, do you have that handy or does anyone have that quote handy? I have it handy, yeah. Uh, one night, as he was laying in bed watching a Bionic Woman episode, the head ninja came in to turn down the volume and to help Takeshi another kind of bedtime story. Hey, she was just about to... Jamie Summers will understand. This is important, so listen up. It takes place in the Garden of Eden. Back then, long ago, there were no men at all. Paradise was female. Even her sister, Lilith, were alone in the garden. A character named Adam was put into the story later to make to help make men look more legitimate. But in fact, the first man was not Adam. It was the serpent. I like this story, said Takeshi, snuggling into his pillow. It was sleazy, slippery man, Rochelle continued, who invented good and evil, where before women had been content to just be. In among the other confidence games they were running on women at the time, men also convinced us that we were the natural administrators or sorry, men also convinced us. I okay. My sorry. Men also convinced us that we were the natural administrators of this thing, morality. They just invented. They dragged us all in, down into this wreck they'd made of the creation, all subdivided and labeled. Handed us the keys to the church and headed off toward the dance halls and the honky tonk saloons. Now behind those jive Oscar Goldman shades, you look bright enough to understand that I'm talking about Daryl Louise. 
for all her personal distance with people, she won't have an easy time out there with you, because she never does, and it might not be out of line if now and then you'd entertain a few kind moments of thought on her behalf. Takeshi raised his shades and gave her the eye-to-eye, -eye, intrigued by the expression on her face. She could almost have been asking for a favor. My pleasure, but there was more? The head ninja, using only her eyebrows, shrugged. Don't commit original sin. Try and let her just be. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can interpret that out as it relates to Vineland or or Pinchon's, you know, view of, of history or, or men and women. I think that it offers a lot to, to consider. I, I find it surprising that David Cowart wouldn't, ex, you know, expound upon that in in his book. Did he... Did he say basically anything at all, or just he he drew the the lines between the characters and and the the mythological characters? I think he was talking uh, about those those four characters as like those characters from the Bible and Jewish mythology uh, in the context of um, like Brock um, tempting Frenessi to. The dark side, basically, to the federales side, uh, to the federal side, and um, weed kind of being ca caught in the crossfire. And um, I don't remember anything about DL and Lilith, but and then like um, yeah, so weed being weed being caught in the crossfire, and then um, Frenessi kind of tempting him also over to the dark side, uh, to the fed federal side, which is a bit of a spoiler at this point, I guess, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, he does he does kind of talk about that a little bit, just in the context, like I said, of of Brock being like the tempting, the one who tempts for Nessie. Um, but he doesn't. I I wasn't super pleased with with his interpretation, just because he, yeah, like I said, he doesn't he doesn't get into like the the nitty gritty of exactly what he means and exactly what that would mean for the book as a whole. Gotcha. Does anyone else have anything they wanted to to add to this particular? sort of quote or, or section in the book. I, I don't want it to just turn into me talking at length. No, I actually I didn't know much about the the whole uh, Lilith mythology, so I was curious to hear about that as well. And um yeah, I mean based on what Luke mentioned that that David Cowart said in his book, like I that's I'm gonna have to sit and think on that for a while because I think there's it's an interesting through line. I just yeah, if it, if the fact that it's not really extrapolated kind of makes me um wish that it was um <laughs> but I, there's some i think there might be something there i just have to really give it some time to think on uh, the yeah. quote that will read out it does remind me of uh nietzsche's beyond good and evil um mm -hmm. and i do think that that's probably where pension um got this idea for good and evil being um Kind of artificial constructs or you know in the in vineland it's stated that man kind of came up with the difference between good and evil um i don't remember if you know nietzsche was not the most enlightened thinker in terms of his views on women um so i kind of doubt that that was taken from nietzsche i have read book beyond good and evil but it's been about 10 years uh, nine or ten years since i've read it um so i'm not super familiar with it anymore um that book does get into different stuff about Judaism and stuff in in a, in a more positive light. 
it does portray Judaism pretty positively. Um, but I don't remember him getting into the the creation myth or anything in that book. That being said, I, I do think that that's could be where Inchin got this idea of good and evil being, um, you know, not really actually existing in the natural world and stuff. Yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I think that this this whole little section, the the idea of casting these characters, the, you know, Frenesi and DL as Eve and Lilith, I think that's one of those things that. While I, I'm not saying nobody should think on it, because, uh, yeah, the, again, these books are full of, like, a thousand different equally valid interpretations. One of those facets of Tinchin's writing is his insistence on writing these analogies that break down once you realize them. <laughs> and that that seems like it might be one, because it's very obvious. I think it's, a, like, it, you know, it if you're going to sit there and look at this little tiny fable in the middle of the book and say, how does this have to do with the book? You can't ignore the fact that that's a story about betrayal and uh, a, a lesbian romance that is disrupted by uh, outside corruption. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's right. It's all, it's all very clear. And it's so clear that it seems like one of those things that's almost a trap for the reader. I'm glad I'm I'm glad I have you to spell that out, Will, so that I don't have to. <laughs> I'm always happy to talk in circles. Um yeah, I, no, I, I agree completely. I think that the, the surface level interpretation there is 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 very easy to access from a standpoint of some of the stuff that we're talking about as far as the difference in how DL views Frenessi versus how Frenessi views her and the the eventual end of the relationship and the, the very baffling circumstances of that. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting that there is there is certainly, uh, you know, additional room to interpret there, because what is what is the mother superior character really mean by original sin? Does she mean the 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 issue of trying to put yourself on the same position as God? Does she mean putting yourself in a position where you're you're claiming the um, to know right from wrong? You know, it, it there, there's a lot of room to dig into that, and I think that we can kind of get bogged down in that if we if we keep going through it for too much longer. So, this is another case where you know if you're if you're a reader who is listening along with us and you have your own thoughts on on this inclusion, you have your own interpretations, please let us know what those are. Because um, Lord knows I could talk for the next forty five minutes in circles about it <laughs> and and how it especially relates to probably Pinchon's wider canon, but. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I, I, th- I think that would probably just do nothing but exhaust uh, our listeners. <laughs> um, so if there's nothing that anyone else wanted to to add in there, we can we can move to probably Pinchon's most um, engaging restaurant that he's ever written into a book, as far as it not being gross and actually seeming to, say, to be like, like normal food. Yeah, normal food that seems pretty good. This makes me think yeah. that that Pinchon probably likes barbecue and can't find it within himself to denigrate that particular culinary invention. I, I think it's hard, for, you know, the way that he, he criticizes food in the rest of this book is all about <laughs> the artificiality. It's really hard to denigrate um, putting some big old hunks of meat over an open <laughs> fire. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, pretty primal form of cooking. In the middle of the restaurant, though, which I find 
hilarious because that restaurant between the the like open pit fire, the people smoking cigarettes and then the people smoking joints, it must be like a Mason and Dixon coffee house. As I far was going to say, yeah, it's a real not mm-hmm. people can see across the room. <laughs> real hazy atmosphere there. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I do also love that the restaurant is called Your Mama Eats. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is I and I I don't. He's definitely got a, a penchant for Yo Mama jokes. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe my favorite example of that comes in Against the Day. Um, I will save that because Kate hasn't read it, um, so I don't want to spoil <laughs> that. But there's there's some pretty good ones in there uh, from a character that you wouldn't expect them to come from. Okay, so interesting. I want some barbecue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I the first time sure. reading a Pinchon book that I want food. Right. It's it's no who can really hate on barbecue like it, I know it really is. Well, probably most vegans. Yeah, I was about to say vegetarians, but yeah, you can well, you can barbecue veggies too, though. Yes, yeah. I was going to say my That's wife's true. a vegetarian and she she likes a good barbecue. So some halloumi cheese barbecued. I mean, I you grill some bell peppers. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm in. Yeah, you can't go wrong. Nobody hates barbecue. Unless you're allergic to brown sugar, maybe. There's a lot of brown sugar in well, barbecue. That, 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 now we're getting into regional barbecues, and that's a that's a dangerous <laughs> territory to be diving yeah. into. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into that. Yeah. I mean, this this almost seems more South, South Carolina with the, the mustard and hot peppers than the, Texas. Yeah, the dry, the drier. Mm-hmm. So speaking of of South Carolina barbecue, uh, most of most of the food that is ordered by Takeshi is eaten by a thanatoid, which we'll get to. But we briefly mm-hmm. have a follow up with his uh, boss at Wawazume Life and Non Life, who sort of more or less says to him that uh, they're cleaning house as it relates to this whole Godzilla stomp. Um, do we have any follow-up thoughts on the Godzilla portion from the previous chapter with this new information? Anything about, you know, the the ideas that we talked about last week in relation to that with some more time to think on it? I, I, it, I don't know if it's this section, but I do think, you know, the part where they talk about the um, Godzilla having, like, uh, like, like some type of uh, traceable, like, energy being left behind... Uh, mm-hmm. I do. I do find that really interesting. Uh, I'm not really. I'm not. I don't know all this stuff about like different uh, areas of the body and uh, as it relates to like chakras and stuff. Um, but I did find that really interesting that Godzilla would have left behind some type of like traceable life energy. I just find it interesting to think about. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is that I, I love that paragraph where they're talking about the the standardized reflexology analysis um, (laughs) where they mapped the foot based on the imprint that it left and found all the electromagnetic signatures and stuff. That's one of those things like reflexology and, and all of that is a, I think maybe this is part of what has like really always drawn me to pinch on's work since I've started reading it is, is the, um, not necessarily saying that it's, it's a valid, science or anything like that, but at least giving it a sort of mysticism or, or air of realism that kind of, if you, even if you don't believe that it is a valid thing, which I I don't really buy into the whole 
chakras and and reflexology and all that. But it's one of those things that's it's a really cool idea. And I think that's what is kind of presented here and in a lot of his other stuff is that it's that kind of mysticism is not something that we really have anymore. Uh, it's, you know, they're always kind of relics of these older, you know, be it religious beliefs or uh, just a lack of understanding of how the human body worked at the time. Um, but it's always, it's, it's just a really interesting concept that I just kind of wish was true. Yeah, yeah, it might not be a way of knowing the truth in some capital T sense, but A, Pynchon's not a fan of capital T's. Yeah. <laughs> secondarily, um, it's, it's, you know, it's a way of knowing. It might be knowing essentially just like internal physiological noise, but there's something it's measuring, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of take it as a kind of a confirmation of the suspicion that... uh it wasn't actually Godzilla because it is like reflexology. Mm -hmm. Say what you will about the, the quasi medical purposes of reflexology, but I'm pretty sure that you can't look at a footprint and then using those practices, model the being that made the footprint. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a proper is, use. of It that. is in tying with some of the themes of the book though. It is a very kind of TV way of going about that, you know, in a, in a, sure police procedural kind of way of, you know, like MacGyvering your way from one thing to another, like, you know, oh, we found this fiber on the, on the ground and then extrapolating from that, that it was, you know, whatever the case may be. That's, you know, it is definitely that it's, it's very TV ish. Yeah. I, I, I think it's very interesting. The, the level of, um, I'll say, I guess, referential nature that this book has towards towards television in that respect, Cody, because that was what I thought about, too. The idea that, you know, oh, we traced this footprint and there there was there was a portion in each part of the footprint that led us to every vital organ that could tell yeah. us exactly what it had eaten, exactly what it's like cholesterol was. Yep. And also has told us that it is a 10,000 foot tall saurian creature. Yeah. Um, yeah, very, very uh ncis uh it's a, of, of yeah them. i was gonna say very csi yeah NCIS. that's for sure yeah um so that that if there's nothing else that does bring us to the thanatoids what what did we think about the 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 thanatoids and their their propensity to uh to push themselves towards some form of death involving television i i i think there's a lot I, so I'll, I'll back up and say that i i have seen some people online talk about how the whole thanatoid concept slowed everything down too much for them and they didn't like it. Um, which I, I would disagree with. I think it, that the, the thanatoids are arguably one of the most interesting parts of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, I do love the fact that, w that we're introduced to someone just like, you know, I, the, the idea of leaving and coming back to someone else eating my food is such a haunting thought for me. <laughs> like, uh, it's just a stranger. I, it's just someone random. Yeah. Yeah. My social anxiety is bad enough as it is. If someone was just eating my food, I would just leave. Like I, there's, <laughs> that's the end of it. That's the end of my day. I'm going home and I'm just going to shut down for the rest of the day. Um, but it, it leads, you know, obviously it leads into this whole conversation with, with the, the thanatoids and understanding what the thanatoids are. Um, I did read on the on the Pinch on Wiki that they 
you could view them as as sort of uh, an allegory or or an allusion to like Vietnam vets, which is an interesting way to look at it. I think, especially when you consider that a lot of what this book is talking about is, um, what, and not just this book, but this chapter, this back half of the chapter about what uh, America has done to its people at different times, specifically with Vietnam, um, and the the re not the react the the reality of of them coming back and and the way that they were treated upon coming back um and so i think it's interesting to look at them through that lens um and especially with their obsession with tv um which is you know really can be a great means of dealing with a lot of the trauma that they would have experienced um yeah it's at the same time, though, it can also probably trigger a lot of that trauma as well. So it's a really interesting kind of force that they're really fixating on. Um, but I, I, the, the fact that they're referred to as, as ghosts and victims and there's mentions of what was done to them, uh, all kind of, you know, when I, I read it through thinking about them as, as being Vietnam vets and it kind of made a more uh, interesting way of looking at them that I hadn't really in the past. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting to think of Thanatoids as as Vietnam vets. Um, you know, Cody mentions in the notes for the show that they're referred to as ghosts and victims, um, and there's mentions of what was done to them. Um, I I personally link Thanatoids more towards like people who were like hippies in the '60s. In early seventies, who then kind of fried their brains or something. I, I, mm. whenever I first read this book, I didn't necessarily pick up on the ghostly aspect of the Thanatoids. I thought that they were just kind of dropouts who sat around watching TV. Mm. Um, but for me, it kind of reminds me more of like stuff like um, Philip K. Dick's Scanner Darkly with people that were kind of victims of of the drug culture in the sixties and seventies who kind of fried their brains and now are just kind of like the walking wounded or you know, are just kind of um, their lives are pretty much over just because of, of how much they've abused drugs or something. Um, it also kind of reminded me of, of that kind of of the hippies because it 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 does seem like they're Thanatoids like the best part of you know like Thanatoids don't really live their lives anymore like you know and it does seem to be like they they used to be people regular people and then now that they've kind of dropped out of society completely. Um, which also kind of reminds me of of the hippie movement and how I think we've talked about how a lot of them kind of went straight and turned into conservative wasps. Um, mm-hmm. but uh, but it it just reminded me of all of that. Yeah. So my interpretation is one that uh, I'm reluctant to go too deeply into because I think it makes it, it's a difficult one to actually like discuss with the other more relevant themes to the this book. But I, I view them as an extension of, like, the ultimate extension of the experience that Oedipa was going through in Lot 49, and the ultimate extension of the preterites as, as a concept that Pynchon returns to quite a bit, or mm-hmm. the human yo-yo, you know. People who are fundamentally constrained and cannot themselves see those constraints that are put on them by society and or by individuals around them. And the Thanatoids are people who, yes, they've been damaged, but the karma may or may not be, like, 
a metaphysical reality for these people. It might not be that they are harmed and therefore they are like metaphysically dead. But closer to your kind of initial thoughts, Luke, with them being dropouts, but almost the opposite. They, they, they're kind of the proto what we would now kind of lump into the incel thing these days. Mm-hmm. Where they're, they're, they seem to be people who have decided that there is no purpose to life and yet they still are here living. And the only way that they can survive with that is by manufacturing, you know, the, the stuff, or well, uh, consuming the manufactured stuff, which substitutes for daily life uh, via television. And at the same time, justifying their, their discontent with this resentment that they're manufacturing, because they don't want to be alive. They would like to be dead in some way, shape, or form, but they are not willing or able to either go through the act of suicide or through... They, they have just decided that that's not an option for themselves in some way, whether it's because of a conscious refusal or a subconscious dismissal. And so they, they, are, these, they are stuck in a limbo of sorts in a, in a more literal, realistic sense. And so... If, you, if you're going to try and make sense of it all, the only way you can do so is by framing them as these metaphysically dead people who are so harmed by the world around them. Because the alternative is to essentially look at each and every one of these very many people who are clearly the victims of many wrongs and to say, well, you are all choosing to not live lives. You are all choosing to be dead. Which is a, a kind of a... An, almost infinitely disgusting thing to say. <laughs> hmm Well, and this is where I'm reminded of the, the, the article that Pinchon wrote on Sloth, where there's a paragraph in there where, just towards the end, like literally the second-to-last paragraph where, where Pinchon writes, Unless the state of our souls becomes once more a subject of serious concern, there is little question that Sloth will continue to evolve away from its origins in the long-ago age of faith and miracle. When daily life really was the Holy Ghost visibly at work, and time was a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Belief was intense, engagement deep, and, in, and was fatal. The Christian God was near, felt sloth, defiant sorrow in the face of God's good intentions, was a deadly sin. I, I think that there's a real connection between what Pinchon is trying to articulate in that article and what is going on with these characters, because... I don't think Pinchon is, is trying by any means to say that, that we are still living in an age where uh, the Christian God was near and that the, the Holy Ghost was visibly at work in the world around them. I think that we've, we've mentioned in several episodes across multiple books why that's not what Pinchon is writing about. So it's a world where sloth doesn't actually sort of get you any closer to death because it's not it's no longer a deadly sin it's no longer a fatal thing to to deny the world around you but that's exactly what the thanatoids are trying to do they're trying to advance themselves closer to the cause of death as it kind of says in in this section where the character is introduced but the way they're going about it is never going to get them there because it is it's just a case where they can just keep watching stories over and over and over again on television forever and there is no actual 
spiritual death that comes about from that in the way that it would have. Like, the world has fundamentally shifted. And then from there, you can obviously build out this idea that the world has fundamentally shifted because of things like Vietnam. And the, the associations between Vietnam and television are very historically clear. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some of that going on in Pinchon's head. But you could say, you know, the war on drugs, Vietnam, um, you know, there there's so many different things that you could add into that idea of why the world has, has inexorably changed to become worse and a place where, you know, so to speak, the, the Holy Spirit or whatever spiritual force is no longer alive. And so what they're doing renders them in this sort of weird state of karmic imbalance because what they're attempting to do has no end. The end result they're striving for will never come. But there is also somewhat of a of a little death, so to speak, in not really eating food, not really leaving your house, not really doing anything other than watching TV. And I think that's why they're kind of represented in a ghostly fashion, whereas these these people who are out of karmic balance because their end goal is not available to them anymore, but they're trying anyway. And they're doing enough damage that they're kind of fading out of reality or existence, so to speak, but never fully completing that cycle, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and then that kind of links together with going back to the uh, the, the wise words that Sister Rochelle had for Takeshi. Mm-hmm. When when DL sees these Thanatoids, she is she you know she has a conversation with them. She's not like throwing like, treating them like trash, but she is clearly disturbed. She is clearly maybe not disturbed, but she she doesn't view them as right in a fundamental sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's you know Takeshi. By basically saying, well, these are people who have been wronged. That's that's morality. He's committing original sin there. Yep. Original sin isn't necessarily saying these people are wrong. These you are a bad person for doing this. In in this framing, original sin is the establishment of hey, now you need to recognize these people for people. They don't deserve what you're what you're laying on them. They're not dead. Mm-hmm. They're just wronged. I don't know what to make of that connection, but it's it's right there. Yeah, that's a lot of food for thought for both us and the listeners, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so from there, sort of the two of them are are brought back to this this you know, space where there's a lot of thanatoids, a lot of people needing this karmic adjustment, and that's that's how that's how the business starts. That's the precursor to to Takeshi's excellent business card that we we get a, a glimpse at earlier in the book, so we're, we're, we're building some more of that backstory as the book is continuing on, and they start doing this as a, as a business together. This is how they're going to spend the, the year um, that they have to spend together. And a and, day. And a, and a day, yes, absolutely, <laughs> to avoid the horrors of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, so does someone want to... Because this, I think all of us are kind of in, in agreement that the Blood and Vato section is like the heaviest section emotionally probably the most obfuscated i guess i'll say as far as you know what is going on or what pinchon is getting at does someone want to try and kind of give a bit of a of a summary or an explanation beyond the work that will did at the, the beginning of the episode for this this piece of the chapter or perhaps we can each give our understandings of what's going on I think it might be best to just kind of 
talk our way through it and see if we can maybe kind of cut our way through the the dense forest that this kind of thing is. Because <laughs> um, we were talking before the before we started recording about this um, this part of the chapter and and the kind of inherent um, haziness that that there is here as far as what's going on and and who you know like certain people's uh role or capacity within it is um it's yeah it's it's an interesting section um i don't really know where to even start with it though is the thing <laughs> well i guess we could start with the idea that these two businesses seem to be the only ones that aren't just like giant mega corporations that want to interface with the thanatoids yeah, that's okay. And that's how they meet is they mm -hmm. just happen to be the only two businesses in this basically town of And what is they it, share Sands a building Springs. too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I can I I can start by just reading kind of the introduction that we get of of the two of them. Waiting for them this morning were Toei teammates Vato and Blood, whom they'd met in the parking lot of the Woodbine Motel late at night, thundering along in a low, inaccustomed deluxe named Mivita Loka, searching for likely units. The boys, when Takeshi and DL had appeared in their headlights, had been scaling the cars in this lot, as timber scalers would go through a piece of forest to estimate how many board feet of lumber it contains. Their tasks seemed to have been straightforward. Simply choose, for towing away, the highest price rides first. But it depended, as either partner would have been quick to explain, on the make of a high-priced ride. A Rolls-Royce owner, for instance, would know how to turn the bothersome chore of redeeming his automobile into a light-hearted adventure, cheerfully paying all the exorbitant fees, some invented on the spot, and throwing in a big tip besides. On the other hand, towing away any Mercedes, even in the short run, was a losing proposition. No Mercedes driver would ever show up at V&B Tow at 3 in the morning in any mood for fun. Vato and Blood had recently been to a workshop down at a spa in Marin on this very subject. Interpersonal programming and the problem toe in which the point had been made more than once that a Mercedes driver in redeeming his impounded ride shows no better manners than when he drives, trying first thing in the Marquis tradition of never signaling in Unanut's kick in the balls. So <laughs> they're essentially just these kind of sleazy tow truck drivers who mm -hmm. go around sort of ripping off people's cars that that they can impound and and get the most money off of is really what what they're kind of doing um and they seem to to target the i guess i'll say exact opposite of the thanatoids the wealthy people that may or may not surround this area and i guess from there it really moves into more of a conversation about how the two of them met the 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 third partner of their business the woman who does all their bookkeeping i guess is really where it kind of evolves from there if if everyone would agree with that um yeah. and they they met that bookkeeper through the vietnam war um if someone wants to pick up from from there and that whole connection between them and the the previous guardian of their bookkeeper The, the the show has not ended. We are all just frantically searching through this remarkably <laughs> dense section of the chapter to find I'm exactly trying. what we all read just like an hour ago. Yeah. For the listener's sake. We know where this is, we just can't find it because it's so dense. 
I, I can go back and like find the same quotes that I was reading for Will earlier, but I don't want it to just be me talking. Uh, uh, okay, found it. Hey, maybe you can eat that shit. The task seemed impossible. Every eatery choice carried some risk of offense, and neither wished to call down any dragon lady type of curses from the woman who these days held her held in her exquisite hands every last detail of VNB's finances, including many of interest not only to the IRS, but also to organizations that were much less coy about theft. Though they went to elaborate lengths to deny it, Bato and Blood were both afraid of her. In May of 75, they'd found her languishing in Pendleton, along with thousands of others who'd flooded in after the fall of Saigon. But their history went back further, to their wartime association with Gorman the Spectre, Flaff's legendary operations in money orders, and piesters, into which they had bought, it, bought at exactly the right moment in the Spectre's tangled financial saga to furnish them with the metaphysical edge of seeming to have performed an angelic intervention. In return, they gained the superstitious Flaff's confidence, which turned out to include naming them in his will to take over his obligations to Tyon Tran. So in, in some way, they've been grandfathered into some strangely almost abusive bookkeeping operation uh, from some previous helpful man who seems to I, I don't get this i truly don't understand no and this. it's i know and <laughs> yeah you literally just read it and i'm still I, i'm still on this paragraph just trying to parse out <laughs> all of it um I, I don't this is probably the the toughest part of this chapter for me I, and i know will said the same thing as well like i think that probably is the case for everybody because even on the um, like on the Reddit read through that they did a couple years back, like it's there's almost no mention of it at all. <laughs> Aside from like a brief paragraph, they kind of talk about how Vato and Blood are just kind of um, the odd couple stereotype characters. Um, it's, I mean, yeah, I could read this three or four times probably and still not come away with enough to make a valid argument about anything. Yeah, and, and then the, the following paragraph, it's skipping a few lines of dialogue, essentially goes into how this, this, this Spectre Flaff fella had been paying for her education at some point in time. And I guess she just got enough dirt on him that, you know, she was done working for him, or at least she knew that he was dead soon. And uh, wanted another position, I guess. Or maybe she's just being pushed around it's it's interesting because we don't actually get any direct descriptions of her that are not mediated by blood and vato mm -hmm. but right. it also it's, it's implied that she's really good at her job too so like she clearly mm -hmm. picked up something from these from the the classes that she did and i you know i'm i'm curious about blood and vato's i i don't want to say sense of obligation uh, to her, but they definitely are deferential to her, whether it's because they understand that she knows more than they do or because of, the, of her past and they're trying to, you know, have a, a level of respect and, um, you know, make sure that she's, um, that she knows that her, her, work is, is valid and, and that they appreciate it. I don't, I don't know. I can't like, 
there's there's so much, but there's so little at the same time. <laughs> I, I I really came away from it like after because I think I think like most people, you know, reading through this section at least bef- before the Bigfoot stuff, which we'll obviously get to, where that's a bit, you know, it, it's it's still I guess complicated, but not nearly to the same degree. I, I just I get a sense that Pinchon is trying to say something about the Vietnam War in particular. You know, the fact that this is a woman who was kind of passed around out of that displacement Mm -hmm. from the Vietnam War and has kind of ended up in a position where she's been, you know, willingly becoming an accountant, so to speak, but kind of unwillingly or at least without her own input being willed around to different people to to be, you know, at first a servant to a, a different group of people and then eventually kind of the the head honcho, so to speak, simply because Blood and Vado don't have any kind of competency in what she does. Like, there, I, I just get the sense that there's something Pinchon is reaching there for about America's entrance into Vietnam and the way that it displaced the Vietnamese people in a way right. that is is very difficult to to pin down because obviously this particular character is, is a Vietnamese woman who has essentially lost any kind of sense of agency and has been torn away from where it is that she, you know, she lived, she, she, her family lives, I would assume into a completely different world and is just, again, being passed from person to person, even though one would assume that she is an adult. Um, yeah. It, it's, it, there, yeah, there's something there. I feel like that that Pinchon is reaching towards about the Vietnam War, about imperialism, or the way that it affects the people um, in the countries where those conflicts take place. But what what specifically it is, I'm I'm having a hard time synthesizing. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering if it has if it if you could tie it back into the karmic adjustment and Vato and Blood are are trying to balance the the negative that she's gone through with the positive of of the way they treat her and their um their deference towards her i i don't i don't know like it's not i i don't i can't expect for anything pinchon does to be explicit in its in its meaning but it's uh this is definitely one of the more obvious ah, damn out it's one of the harder parts to parse my brain isn't working and my mouth isn't working right now but um i i agree with you there there's something here and i mm-hmm. i just can't uh, it's like I'm I'm reaching into a, a bag with one thing in there and I can't find that one thing. And it's maddening. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I misspoke there. Uh, she is actually described to us directly by the narrator in two sentences. Uh, well, three, I guess, if you count this as description. The Chaikom Mac-10 was nowhere, at least by any casual eyes, to be seen. She was wearing a fawn jumpsuit of some loose cotton weave, accessorized in different shades of red, eyeglass frames, scarf, belt, and suede cowgirl boots that might have set her back somewhere in the mid-three figures. Red designer Barrette held her hair sleekly back from an articulate brow and temples that often seemed ready to betray more than the shielded eyes ever would. And I, 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 I'm not getting anything out of that, but as, a, <laughs> as another instance of... Um, probably thematically resonant dress in the chapter earlier we had the we had this situation of Takeshi and DL starting their business and Takeshi is wearing a black suit and DL is wearing a white silk gi 
and in that case you have you know kind of a, some fairly straightforward you know like oh well the asian guy has to dress in western clothes and dl in order to exoticize herself has to dress in the martial arts uniform but with this she is not wearing like the business clothes and she's not wearing like the western female dress code you know in like a traditional sense and neither is she wearing anything remotely traditional to vietnam and that's where I run out of steam. See, and I'm even, I'm just, I'm skimming over some of these pages right now. And I'm, I'm thinking back to what I said earlier. And then I'm, I, re, I read and I remember that they also, you know, despite the fact that they give her this job and they basically go by whatever she says, they also don't really speak kindly of her all the time. No, no, they so really don't. It's, you know. They I, I they don't... treat her like they do a boss, even though they yeah. are technically in charge. Yeah, it's I don't know. I would I would love if anybody listening has like anything that they want to add to this. I would I would genuinely love to know um, what everyone else makes of it because I know yeah. there's something here. I know there's more than just one something here. Um, so I, I would love to get some uh, interpretations from listeners. I mean, it's entirely to to potentially be just grasping at straws. It is entirely possible that she is just a metaphor for the Vietnam War as a conflict. Yeah, that's entirely possible. You have, like, this sort of mixture of, in her outfit, I get the sense of, like, a mixture of obviously American clothing, that being, like, the cowboy boots and everything, but also this sort of mixture of, like, French clothing or, or, you know, European designer clothing and France was involved in Vietnam before um, before America was, if I remember correctly. But more deliberately, from an allegorical perspective, you have a Vietnamese woman who, in theory, is in a position of, of less power against these American guys who should have more power to exert in that situation because they're like her legal guardian somehow. They are her employer technically like like we've mentioned a couple times they are her boss you know but despite all of that power and authority that they should have they are frightened of her they are in a losing position compared to the decisions that she makes and that is sort of very much a mirror to at least america's involvement in vietnam from a standpoint of you know the 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 number one military in the world going into this tiny country that most people hadn't heard of at the time in America and while never losing a firefight on the actual battlefield still lost the war mm-hmm. and still were completely outdone by, you know, a significantly less powerful, less well-equipped fighting force. Like there, that, that, that could just be what Pinchon is doing there. Um, I don't, I, but I don't know. There's no, there's no easy answer to it. Yeah, and, and, you know, even more so, there's the fact that she was educated at, uh, it's a French name, but it translates to the School of Young Women, and it's, I mean, it's a French name, like, you know, if you're going to be looking at it, at at her as a stand-in for the entirety of the Vietnam War, or the the Vietnam as as an actor in that war, then, you know, there might be something to be said there about, like, well, Americans think it's all about about us, you know? 
maybe she was just some girl that he that that um you know Gorman Flaff met on tour and somehow didn't do any wrong to her and thought hey you deserve to go to school and paid for her to go to this French school you know we we're getting all of this stuff third hand and there's a lot of mediation going on and she was she's not like some she's not some like icon of traditional vietnamese living mm-hmm. whether she never had a chance or it was just not the context that she grew up in i do kind of have some vague thoughts about how they make um her an equal partner in the business um but then they're also scared of her and talk shit about her um to the fact that you know like the u.s in the vietnam war would have been ostensibly equal partners with the south vietnamese government um and yet the you know like the Viet Cong were still very strong in in south vietnam and the citizenry of south vietnam were not necessarily a big fan of americans um i think you might see where i'm going with that where like we we're supposed mm-hmm. to be equal partners with south vietnam but they were antagonistic towards us maybe not the government but the citizenry um and i'm sure that vietnamese or american soldiers probably did not have super positive or enlightened views on the south vietnamese citizenry uh, as well where you know like i said we were supposed to be equal partners with south vietnam and um even if we outnumbered them and um you know kind of we're supposed to be the people kind of in charge or at least supposed to be equal um, that relationship, while it was supposed to be positive, was largely a negative. Um, I think you can. There's might be something there with that. Yeah, I agree. I, I she seems to be certainly a synthesis of a lot of a lot of things with that conflict, and the fact that you know she was introduced to them in 1975 is significant on its own because that was the last year of South <laughs> Vietnam existing. That was the last year of the refugees, like trying to get out of South Vietnam when the North was running over the border. Like it, it, it's, there's a lot there. Um, and I think it just requires, you know, someone to, to really be able to piece it together as far as what pinch on might be driving towards that. That's, that's another thing to, to throw out to you guys, our listeners. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you have any additional historical context add in? What was your reaction to, to her presence in the book? Um, you know, how did you feel about it? Um, you know, please do do write in and let us know. Maybe we're all crazy, you know, who knows? Um, so kind of moving on from that, Cody, you had a note in here about TV and society and kind of building on the themes that we've talked about uh, already across the book. Do you want to kind of uh, expound upon that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's not much I can tremendously add from what we've already kind of talked about. I think a main theme of this book is the is the impact that TV has had um on on society on on individuals and and the the ubiquitousness that it became uh around this time and i i think it's it's most prevalent in the, in this chapter with characters specifically blood and at the end of the chapter prairie um kind of trying to view everything through the lens of a tv show um and how 
it, it, it's it's indicative of how impactful TV has been, especially I think more so for Blood because I think Prairie is at the end of the chapter just kind of hoping that it could the situation could be like a TV show where it's just everything could be easily resolved and all the all the loose ends tied up nicely in a in a neat little bow. Um, I think Blood is more. I, I think we're we're seeing him as more of the uh, the dangerous side of TV where. The, the ability to separate reality from uh, a TV episode or or a movie is much more blurred for him. Um, you know, he he wants the DL and Takeshi story to be a sitcom. Um, he, him and Vato both, you know, are are reworking the Chipmunks theme song to um, <laughs> or Chippendale Rescue Rangers, I think it was. Um, you know, so it's it's. The, the pervasiveness of TV and, and what it has done. And we talked earlier, too, about the, the Thanatoids and their use of TV and, and how that uh, can be viewed in, in a number of different ways. So I, I just think that this is... Um, it's, it's especially interesting given how much of this story is structured in a sort of television trope manner. Like we talked earlier about the, the Godzilla foot and how... Um, the uh, the electroanalysis of it, you know, was very convenient to, you know, sorting out exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, Isaiah 2-4's entrance I, into the chapter. Exactly, yeah. There's so much of this book that is structured in a in a television episode uh, kind of way. Entirely purposeful, obviously. Um, but it lends itself so well to being able to, you know, reflect on on the impact that TV has had on almost every facet of life at this point in by 1984 in the story and, and in 1990 and in, in the time that this book was published. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's, it's taking all of my willpower, not just to talk about David Foster Wallace for half an hour in, <laughs> in response to that, because so much of what he wrote about maps very cleanly um, in ways that I think maybe are, are easier to digest than potentially the level that Pinchon is working on here. But I'll spare our listeners the the uh, info dump there. Um, you could do a bonus episode on that. That would be yeah. Good. I could definitely just go nuts. Um, but no, I, I I agree. I think that the fact that the book is structured in in a very television episode kind of format is very telling of of the things that the Pinchon has on his mind and kind of the the pervasiveness of TV from a very metafictional perspective, not just affecting the characters but also affecting the writer of what you're reading mm -hmm. that idea that that structuring tv like reality eventually will bleed into reality and into the things that you know we write and consume that aren't in and of themselves television i think that there's there's a lot there does anyone else have anything to add on to that anybody remember long long ago that hanging signifier of the fig well um I think that a lot of what's going on with what you're talking about there, Cody, with the kind of the, the, it's almost like intra-metafictionalization. I don't know what to call it. Like it, it's, it, it is non-metafiction, but it is trying to situate things as such. Is that the, the, so much of this book can be viewed structurally as a, a, a loving, uh, response to the Odyssey, and I've been holding my tongue because honestly, it's not—I don't find it a very interesting thing to talk about. But in terms of the structural apparatus of television in this book, 
I think that it must be considered that the Odyssey is also like 90% people telling stories to Telemachus or Odysseus <laughs> telling stories to other people who are hosting him for dinner. Um, everything in that in that very old epic poem is which is being told as you know song and poetry told by traveling storytellers is essentially traveling storytellers telling their stories to other people and in that same way this is kind of like an inversion of that with the the actual structure of the book forcing you to look at it through this televised lens and half of the characters viewing it in that way but there not being any real like in the way that the you know the 50s and 60s early postmodernism in, in fiction was infatuated with metafiction it's not the point mm-hmm. it's just here mm-hmm. it's not the point it's just here can i get that like crocheted on a pillow for christmas will <laughs> i cannot crochet but i can uh, mm. tie a couple random knots get a sharpie and just scrawl it on there yeah that works that but... might even be better so uh moving on we have we have the the aforementioned bigfoot segment um uh who wants to kind of give their give their thoughts on on that chunk of it i this is still in the the section of the chapter that i struggled to get anything out of but uh, there there is there's some interesting discussion in that section about the way that these indigenous tribes viewed things that kind of implies that the, the 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 word used is woge or woge or I think it's woge. I think so. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent on the pronunciation, but yeah. And there seems to be kind of this this addition by subtraction of the idea that long long ago there were these these small people, which is uh, similar to the the ideas that uh, you know survive in the current day in Iceland and Greenland about fairies. Um, the, the, the idea that these little people just disappeared and because they disappeared, we are now the little people that we kind of like it by, by being the, the one people left, we create the larger people who are the Bigfoots slash Sasquatches. I think the interesting thing too is is there's there's some stuff here that really recalls some of the thematic elements in Mason and Dixon, which obviously, from a standpoint of publication order, would come after this. But for us, that that was the book we just finished reading. Well, but he was the, also, I mean, he was writing it concurrently. So yeah, no, absolutely. There's overlap so there. I I think like that was for me what I kind of took out of this section was the fact that it seems like those ideas are kind of still in germination where talking about these, these older tribes of either indigenous people or, you know, pre like pre homo sapien people or kind of the, the idea of like these, these gods receding from view and sort of watching us waiting to see if we live correctly and then returning to punish us. If, we don't. I feel like a lot of that is very interesting territory that he mines a lot more in Mason and Dixon. Yeah. But its presence here in Vineland does obviously signal what he was thinking about at the time and like what he was he was finding particularly important. I think 
the sort of interesting idea in its presence in this book is the sort of synthesis of different religious ideas. I guess I'll just read the quote that I'm kind of talking through here, um, where it says, They took the North Spooner exit and got on River Drive. Once past the lights of Vineland, the river took back its older form, became what the Yurok's it had always been said to be, a river of ghosts. Everything had a name. Fishing and snaring places, acorn grounds, rocks in the river, boulders on the blanks, groves, and single trees with their own names, springs, pools, meadows, all alive, each with its own spirit. Many of these were that what the Yurok people called Woge, creatures like humans, but smaller, who had been living here when the first humans came. Before the influx, the Woge withdrew, some went away physically forever, eastward over the mountains, or nestled all together in giant redwood boats, singing unison chants of dispossession and exile, fading as they were taken further out to sea, desolate even to the ears of the newcomers, lost. Other Woge, who found it impossible to leave, withdrew instead into the features of the landscape, remaining conscious, remembering better times, capable of sorrow, and as seasons went on, other emotions as well, as the generations of Yurok sat on them, fished on them, rested in their shade as they learned to love and grow deeper into the nuances of wind and light as well as the earthquakes and eclipses and the massive winter storms that roared in, one after another from the Gulf of Alaska. For the Yuroks, who had always held this river exceptional to follow it up from the ocean, was also to journey through the realm behind the immediate. Fog presences glided in coves, dripping ferns thickened audibly in the gulches, semi-visible birds called in nearly human speech, Trails of that warning would begin to descend into the earth, towards Sorek, the world of the dead. Vato and Blood, who, as city guys you would think might get creeped out by all this, instead took to it as if returning from some exile of their own. Hippies they talked to said it would be reincarnation, that this coast, this watershed, was sacred and magical, and that the Woge were really the porpoises who had left their world to the humans, whose hands had the same five-finger bone structure as their flippers. Okay, and gone beneath the ocean, right off around Patrick's Point in Humboldt, to wait and see how humans did with the world. And if we started fucking up too bad, added some local informants, they would come back, teach us how to live the right way, save us. Yeah, I think that, like, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there about, like, the sacredness of the land and the development of land as a a holy thing. Mm -hmm. And obviously with, I mean... Some of the themes of of clear cut logging that gets brought up all the time in the background of this book it's it's yeah. never it's never too like specifically in the action happening it's just sort of when characters are going from one place to another Pinchon always mentions that there's logging going on or that you know you can you can uh, ask these particular people who who will go up in trees and exactly measure you how much board length you're going to get out of it like that is. There is a specter of the logging industry haunting this book from beginning to end. And I think that some of that is meant to to be thought about through these sections where Pinchon is talking about, again, like the sacredness of the land, the fact that there is something holy in the land. But also, there is a real religious synthesis, as I kind of mentioned before reading the quotes, in these portions here where you have indigenous spirituality, 
You have reincarnation, which is most commonly associated with Buddhism, but is also a part of indigenous spirituality in, in certain tribes. You have the kind of hippie alternative spirituality being brought into it through Vato and Blood's sort of, I guess, interpretation or understanding of, of this particular place of land. So it's also drawing in these ideas of the kind of interesting spiritual expansion or synthesis or syncretism that was going on in the 80s, as we've talked about in prior episodes. But it all is being done with a very clear reverence for the land, where no matter what your position is, whether you're a hippie, whether you're one of these indigenous people, you know, whoever you may be, whatever your opinions are, it still comes back to this idea that the land should be respected, treated well. And that if, you know, that isn't the case, then we're going to be shown how it should be treated. And again, all of this is in Mason and Dixon to much greater detail. But I think some of it also gets to the idea that when we really ramped up our despoiling of the environment would again be the 80s with the expansion of industry, with the expansion of logging, with the expansion of, of just sort of capitalistic business as a whole. And there's, there's, there is certainly something very timely about that being present in this book. Um, something to keep in mind, I think, as we continue to read through and get to the end with, with it sort of being established here at the middle of the, of the novel. Well, to, to piggyback off of the, the kind of last point that you were making there about the um, sort of capitalistic expansion and, and um, desecration of, of the environment, I think that's also, um, and we talked about this in, in the Mason and Dixon episodes as well, is that that's arguably the most common thematic element throughout all of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely, and again, going back to, I think, I think it was at the beginning of this book where we talked about the, um, the settings for all of these books tend to occur at times of, um, major shifts in, uh, the cultural zeitgeist in the way that the, um, the environment was being affected by our actions, um, and, and by the, sort of growth of capitalism as this almost cancerous sort of um entity that that would just be the the sort of impulse behind all of these shifts with going back as far as as Mason and Dixon where you know they're coming over to America and and they start we start reshaping the land so that we can uh essentially you know find ways to thrive and create business and, and, and economic ac- opportunities through against the day where the expansion of the railroad across the country that we've at that point decimated and, and clear cut to make way for this new, you know, business to come through. And it's always, it always comes back to these ways of, of, you know, our obsession with, with economic growth and, and, um, and industry has blinded us to the point where we no longer really care about what we're doing and that yeah i think it's these kind of spiritual passages and these these references these callbacks to the the more ancient religions and the way they revered the land and the way that they respected the land um with the consequence of not doing so being 
that the land will eventually retaliate and and will show us the error of our ways, which I think is always kind of what's being hinted at, especially when you when you look at the Lovecraftian elements uh, that are almost always tied to um, a a large um, almost terrestrial sort of Lovecraftian horror. Um, I, I think that's the the kind of bleed through of of you know this is the environment starting to wake up and and you know bring forth its its revenge, which could also you could probably tie that into the Godzilla thing of you know going back to that conversation about the Godzilla films and where they came from. So I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the through line with all of these all of these works is is you know what you were getting at with that last argument. So the, I, my response is going to be uh, an excursion to the the crazy theory corner. All right. All we right. need but, we need music. <laughs> but in a different music and in a different <laughs> way though. Okay. Um, Uh-oh. Okay. So I don't know if this is something that th- this you know intentionality doesn't matter very much in our conversations here. This is one that I I think it you know it's it's worthwhile to consider. Um in these, in that particular that that particular section about the uh, the hippies theorizing, something to keep in mind alongside the the general the general syncretism of the eighties, like you pointed out, is Kate um, is that the ideas that come out of these hippies thinking about all of these Yurok uh, folklore ideas don't really have a whole lot to do with the actual substance that we see as framed as actual historical traditional ideas, right? What what you have is these people who Pynchon throughout his works have been has been very critical about the way they interpret things. <laughs> taking this idea and taking it all the way to the extent of like, yep, and the porpoises are the are the Wogay. And to tie into the larger conversation about the land, the way that Pynchon talks about it in general is not uh, something that I would consider this way, but the specific way it's talked about in this section verges on um, on Volkish, to use some jargon. Um, And Mm. for those who don't know what that means, uh, some kind of quasi fascist uh, theorizing. this very syncretic faux traditionalism of reaching for what you believe the local inhabitants of the land thought. Because the Nazis, you know, had, you know, they called themselves Christians, but they also called themselves a lot of things. And a big strain of their intellectual side was on this obsession with folklore. And this seems like maybe incidentally, kind of a commentary on the way that the hippie movement has had begun to converge directly with the the people who had made up the hippie movement began to converge immediately with the fascists that they had spent their youths railing against and at the very least it reminds me a lot it, it, it reminds me it, it's not in here really outside of just some vague illusion with the porpoise idea of the of the kinds of thinkers who were publishing in the 80s and 90s and who Pynchon had almost certainly had thousands of conversations with before they were 
published, um, because those ideas tend to boil for a while, talking about things like, well, we're aliens coming and speaking to these indigenous people. And I think that there, there are too many little links that hook together there. And again, it doesn't read to me like something that would have been an intended uh, aspect of the section, but it's, it all kind of bundles together at the same time in my eye. Yeah, I can definitely see what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. All that being said, bundling together, so to speak, uh, to use Will's terminology, is there anything else that anyone wants to add before we move on to funny parts? I just, I just want to express my appreciation for the kick out the jams joke. <laughs> that, was in there. that shit was funny as hell. Also, everyone should go listen to the MC5. Oh, yeah. MC5. They're awesome. a very forgotten band. I'm staring at my box set of all their records as I'm saying this. That's one of those um, bands that I, I think the original quote was about the Pixies, but somebody said that the Pixies were, um, they weren't the band that got the most respect, but they were the band that everyone who listened to them wanted to go start a band. I feel like the, the MC5, the, you could say the same thing Velvet about Velvet Underground. Band. Was it Velvet Underground? Okay. Yeah. That's what it, yeah. Yeah. You could say the same thing about the MC5. I don't think we would have a lot of the, uh, the music that came after them without them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the boldness to have your first album be a live record yeah, um, a, is yeah. something that I don't think has ever been repeated. <laughs> uh, but it is, it is an incredible live album. One of the best ever. Um, so well, so I, I have one more thing. Yeah, Will. Yeah, the, um, I think that Weed Atman at least deserves a mention. I think that it's it's notable that we he's the only thanatoid that we actually kind of get like an origin story for. Oh, fair, yeah. Because with the rest of them, we're kind of you know like we talked about earlier, or like I talked about, and we all talked around earlier. The idea that thanatoids are like they're they're not necessarily like actually dead, and they might actually be dead at the same time. Like they're they're they are in this very transitional phase. And Weed is the one who we get to see the transformation into that middle ground. Yeah, I think that's that that's an excellent point to make. I think that obviously that's not the last of that we see of him in the book, um, if I remember correctly. So no, we'll, absolutely. Yeah, we, we should have more to talk about as he as he crops yeah. back up. Yeah, but definitely a good call out. Um, uh, were there any funny parts that anyone wanted to mention uh, that didn't come up naturally over the course of the conversation? Uh, yeah, I would say Blood and Vato's 2001 Space Odyssey High Five ranks up there for me. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> just... I, I have tried to imagine how that would play out. As well written as it is, I, I just... It's too weird. It is it is quite interesting, but then again, we are talking about uh, two people who listen to the Psycho soundtrack yeah. while they're driving <laughs> at night, touring around. <laughs> which would be my which would be my funny part to mention. I find that so hilarious that they specifically put on the track that Vivian Lee listens to when she drives around yeah. at night while they're driving around at night. There's a, there's so much good music jokes and references throughout this chapter yeah and just in this chapter specifically for some reason yeah i really uh, beyond the slapstick of the just the normal like 
watching Takeshi just take these endless series of pills and like being everyone oh, around yeah. him thinking you're clearly trying to kill yourself, dude. And he's just like, what are you talking about? Nah, that's that's, <laughs> that's just great slapstick. But also, uh, you know, just the, the specific like drug mixes he's on are deeply funny. Yeah. Like they, they are very silly. Like he looks at the label of that medication bottle and it, and it specifically remarks that everything he's currently on is listed as something not to mix it with. Yeah. And then yeah. he just decides to go for it anyway. <laughs> well, and the, the this uh, I mentioned it in the last episode, the simple idea of packaging together what they call methadrine is it is methamphetamine, everybody. Methamphetamine and amobarbital. Like what? Why is that an idea anyone thought? made any sense emma barbital lasts like two hours that's like 12 why not They're both bad for you i do i do also shout out as as a funny part to the description of the horrible nightmare he has when he does eventually sleep like when he lands in the u.s oh, um yeah. just the fact that he he's been up for i think like three days at that point and then finally his body just gives out and it's just the worst night's sleep that anyone has ever had, as opposed to the opposite. Um, I guess that brings us into to quotes. Does, does anyone volunteer to go first? Uh, I'll, I'll go first. I went last last time, so I prevent uh, everyone from stealing from me. Um, I so I was gonna. This is another situation where I don't know what I want to do here because I was gonna go with the those two paragraphs that, that you read earlier, Kate, about the uh, the woge and all, all that. Uh, beautiful prose. I absolutely love that part. Um, but after after talking about it today, I think I'm gonna go with on page 168. Takeshi zipped into an open space and killed the motor. By the time they got inside, your mama eats and had a closer look. It was too late to do anything but make mental notes on where the exits were. They sat in a booth of scuffed turquoise plastic and tried to avoid eye contact with everybody, including each other. It turned out that YME was a famous barbecue joint in this area. The windows were painted black and the counter ran all the way around a huge central pit where different hardwoods glowed and the cooks tended, basted, pulled, or sliced cuts of beef and pork hot links and ribs, wood smoke being drawn out at the vents lazily enough that some mixed with the cigar, cigarette, and joint smoke already in the air. Takeshi ordered the galaxy of ribs, and DL thought she'd have the brisket fantasy, but mainly what they were interested in was coffee. It's, I think what, what made me want to switch over to that from what I had originally chosen was just the, the fact that it's good. It sounds like I, yeah. it makes me hungry. I don't know what a galaxy of ribs would constitute, but I'm down for it. Just, just literally like sixty ribs just piled on a plate. Stacks <laughs> of ribs. Luke, what was your quote? Mine's from one ninety one, uh, the last page of the chapter. They arrived at the mouth of an oversized freight elevator, scrambled inside, and began to plunge ear poppingly hellward. Aged fluorescent bulbs buzzing and flickering till the brakes caught just when it seemed too late. And they boomed to a stop and came out into a tunnel deep underground, which led them under the creek bed and then slowly uphill for half a mile, where they exited at last into brightly sunlit terrain, where they could hear in the distance the invading motor convoy and the blades of the helicopters merged in an industrious roar. It could as well have been another patch of developer condos going up. 
So they may not be like the best pros in this section. I just find it very easy to picture and like very cinematic. And I just oh, really yeah. love that paragraph. That's a good one. Especially also, like the word ear poppingly is really good. Yeah. And the the fact that kind of there's a there's an inherent like fear element to the closing of this chapter and sort of the unknown and Pinchon underscores that after all that nature writing with a new set of condos are being developed, like uh-huh. it's great thematic work that he's doing. Well, big aspic. Well, I will say, um that that was one I was considering, Luke, so I'm glad someone chose it. But uh, I'm going with, and again, apologies to anyone trying to read along. I do not have the page numbers in front of me. But back, way back at the beginning of this half, uh, you have Takeshi just about to get uh, hopefully healed. He went on an intensive program of Punkytron sessions, herbal therapy, brainwave recalibrations. Some of these turned out to be... Er, <laughs> turned out to involve DL. They realized they were being somehow tuned to each other. Could be brainwaves, could be chi, maybe good old ESP. They would lie hooked up side by side like actors in a brain transplant movie while punky, while the punkutron vibrated in Takeshi, his musical preferences mysteriously self-revised. Now listen through earphones to soul-strumming Tibetan chants. He still had no idea who she was. And I really like the prose of that one, but also I th- it's kind of fun because in the middle of this otherwise very kind of normally literary novel, it, you know, relative to Pynchon's other works, is this in- like full cyberpunk scene. <laughs> like it's in the mode of like a noir. It's, it's all of this sci-fi junk happening. And yet fundamentally, it's just about two people who don't know each other. <laughs> very, very good. Uh, instance of his genre sampling it's great yeah i agree well i mean the whole concept of the ninja people are 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 pretty cyberpunk just for sure yeah that just, just so much referential material there for sure um my quote comes from page 187 and more or less picks up after the two paragraphs that i had read a little bit ago um the orchard vato and blood were looking for was on the other side of shade creek meaning the usual difficult passage over the ruins of the old WPA bridge where, somehow, mysteriously, at least one lane was always open. Sometimes entire segments vanished overnight, as if floated away downriver on pontoons. Detours were always necessary, often with the directions crudely spray-painted onto pieces of wall or old plywood shuttering, in the same bristling typeface as gang graffiti. There were always crews at work, around the clock. Tonight, Vato and Blood had to wait while a truck piled high with smashed concrete and corroded iron rod when grinding back and forth by its own routes of beaten earth. Figures and fatigues, and sometimes helmets could be seen. Always in small groups, maybe corps of engineers, nobody was sure. They did not interact with the public, not even as flagmen. Drivers were left to decide how safe it was to proceed. Blood inched the rig forward, past great triangular rents in the pavements through which, screened by a rough weave of reinforcing rods, they could see the river of midnight blue below. The work had been going on since the 64 storm, when the 7th, cresting, had taken part of the bridge. Broken silhouettes had stood against the sky for all the years since. It's... Whew, like, there's just so much in that paragraph. Again, like, like there's... this. I've said this, like, four times this episode, but, like, I could probably talk for a half an hour about the, the quote 
that I just read out because there's so much in that paragraph. There are allusions to the despoiling of the environment. There are allusions to the futility in like modernization and the building of modern structures and modernity because it's it's literally failing and they've been spending 20 years trying to you know constantly repair what it is that they put up. There are allusions there to sort of the the stuff in inherent vice about strange figures showing up in public that are that are there to like cause everything in this dream to come crashing down like uh, there's just so much good material in just that that one paragraph um that again like vineland deserves a closer reading from everybody like that's the yeah. whole point of the reason we're doing this book like please <laughs> This is the only time we've ever been kind of stumped by something in a Pinchon novel. <laughs> it brought us and, to a damn standstill. For yeah. Right yeah. Like it's, there's so much good stuff in here and you know, it, it, it's a book that like, especially as I'm going through it again for a second time with kind of the, all of the years of life that I've lived between the first time I'm reading it and now, like I, there, there's so much more that I'm picking up on on this second reading that um, I just completely missed the first time through, and uh, I'm I'm gonna be tempted to just read the book again when we finish it. To be completely honest, uh, yeah, I know I'm I'm on the same same boat. Yeah, and it's I mean I've I've brought it up a few times, and the reason I've brought it up a few times this far is is that this is the only part of of post-hiatus pensions to work. I, I have not read Bleeding Edge. I might be missing out on that. This is the only chapter that I can think of out of, you know, this, Mason and Dixon, Against the Day, Inherent Vice, that has the same depth of, like, social criticism and structural, like, flippancy is the word I'm going to use, mm-hmm. um, that that he really, that, that is what gave gravity's rainbow the reputation it has today this is like the only book that contains this kind of intensity and it's buried right in the middle and i guess it's buried too deep yeah that's for sure uh what was everyone's most pinch on part of the chapter Uh, mine is probably the relationship between blood and vato and just how they kind of go back and forth and argue about um you know the words that they're singing and stuff um it's a very like pension-esque relationship that they have where they're kind of like frenemies in in some ways Mm -hmm. very true will what about you so i i'm gonna bring up a part that we mostly ignored because there it's there's not that much to dig into except for humor here (laughs) <laughs> but it's it's so Pinchonian, and it, it is so much that same, like, sorry about that. It is so much that same kind of mode of, of obscene, like, earnestness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was tonight or never as far as Prairie was concerned. All the variety loaves, stacked in a distant niche of the freezer, <laughs> had begun to glow, softly blue-green, like a nightlight for the rest of the frozen food, not as once supposed safely dead but no only queerly sleeping or, or perhaps only pretending to sleep ah! <laughs> like everybody else in the kitchen 
Prairie had a threshold for how long she could spend in that sinister freezer before some more than some more than thermometric chill sent her back out into the less clearly haunted world. Pulses thumping. Because yeah, there's. I mean, like yes, obviously it's you know we're getting kind of a description of Prairie, but this is actually not being. This is not her perspective. It is just the narrator is so freaked out that he's right on board with her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, how could we forget the the loaf? Yeah. I don't know, yeah. That's the fact, the, oversight on our part. The fact that the FDA came to to confiscate the EPA. Or the EPA, <laughs> yeah, yeah, EPA yeah, yeah. came to confiscate most of it is insane. <laughs> and and Prairie's seriously considering serving it to people. She is. Like apparently she's become the chef of this chateau. And is now deciding whether or not she wants to poison everyone beyond repair. <laughs> and just, just so if, if some, again, if some ungodly reason someone is listening to this without having read the book, I was not adding anything to that. That is how it's written. Yep. Nope. That's just literally how it's there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go to the audiobook and listen to see how he reads out that line. Oh, that would really be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say my most pinch on part of the chapter, I, I'm tempted to pick just the existence of that loaf, but I'm going to go with what my original one was, which is just the, the repeated joke motif of all of the different like workshops and like mm-hmm. str- strange like community classes that are available. Like we didn't really talk about it during the earlier section of this chapter when it, it lists off the different stuff like the the like criminal prosecutors convention or whatever it's called uh <laughs> that Brock Vond is at in Japan but just the yeah all of those classes that that Pinchon is coming up with and all those seminars that that's another thing that feels very distinctly 80s when like the yep. the intensive or the the workshop or the you know the the 3 week boot camp or whatever became i think a really big thing for a while um so the fa- the fact that he's finding every possible reason for to to put one of those classes in there feels very accurate to the time. And Vato and Blood had their towing conference. Yeah, just leaves you, Cody. So I would say, I I I think I would have to go with the Punkytron and just the general, um the general concept of that and everything, all of the accoutrement that goes with it. Um, it's one of those things that I feel like, and we, like we mentioned earlier, like we're looking at the, the audio tapes that were available uh, to listen to while you were um, being worked or whatever you would call an experience in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's probably so much more that exists uh, that was written for that, that just was trimmed down to, you know, keep it concise and everything. But I, I just get the feeling that Pinchon put a lot of work into making that whole concept become a reality in the story. Um, and I just, I, I just love every aspect of that. Yeah. It's a great element. Well, the audience's homework musically is, is to listen to the MC five. I think we Yeah, we need to we need decided. to start having like a a homework section for people yeah, to tie into definitely. like go watch this this movie or go read this this other book or check out this band or whatever. Yeah, yeah. MC5 would have to be the recommendation for the week. 
uh, another 80s band, I'd say um, MC5 weren't really 80s, but if we're talking about an 80s band, I'd say like orchestral movements in the dark. That would be my my next choice for everyone to listen to for a for like a synth pop or, or I'll say aggressively 80s band as far as how they sound. <laughs> um, Architectural morality in particular is a great album of theirs, but yeah, that'd be that'd be everyone's homework for this week, I'd say. Um, yeah, that's I think gonna wrap it up for this episode of Mapping the Zone, and as well as our discussion on Chapter Nine. Um, hopefully, everyone has a good holiday. The links to our social media profiles are gonna be in the show notes as always. Please feel free to write in on anything from Chapter Nine that you want to add some color to, or tell us that we got wrong, or any questions that you may have from your reading. There's a lot to dive into in this chapter, especially in the latter half of it. And uh, we're going to be taking a bit of a break, right, Cody? Yes. So we will, uh, just so that we can all have our time off with family and holidays and everything like that. Uh, so our next episode will be on uh, the 13th, uh, excuse me, the 12th, January 12th, ideally, unless something happens, in which case we'll put notifications out wherever. But for right now, We'll be back January 12th. Yeah, and when we return, we'll be discussing chapters uh, 10 and 11. And oh, until only then. 25 pages, too. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing as in Mason and Dixon. As soon as he gives you some crazy stuff to really digest, he gives you a little bit of a reprieve. Yeah, just enough. Yeah, just enough. Um, <laughs> as always, everybody, thank you for listening. We'll see you at the next episode. Bye. See ya. Bye. World of cereal anymore. I I happen to think that our listeners would be very interested to hear what kind of cereal we all indulge in. That's what you're talking about, Cody. Probably true. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Indulge in. Yeah. Do you not find cereal to be an indulgence, William? Are you taking the, the Andrew tra- Tate train here and saying that food can't be pleasurable? Uh, as somebody whose anxiety has interfered mostly with that whole experience, uh, I can say yes, but yeah, no. Uh, I just, I just think that cereal is a necessity, you know? Oh, I see. Okay, so it's 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 rather like uh, like bread, water, blood. It's a, it's, it's a right it's, more than a privilege. Yeah, rather than something that you you go out of your way to earn. Yeah, exactly. Cereal aspic beer. <laughs> yeah, beer. Okay. That, that one works. I mean, I I eat cereal on a daily basis. So. Hell yeah, I do too. It's been a while since I ate it on a daily basis, but I do have it when I don't want to cook myself something for breakfast before I go to work. Yeah, I don't have time to like make a proper decent breakfast before I work because I have to take my kids to school and then come back and start work. So cereal is like my go-to. Weekends are different. I can like I actually have time to make like breakfast food. But even then, I'll have I'll have a bowl of cereal for dinner or just during the day. I love it. It's great. Some of those special K cereals are pretty good if you're just looking for like a snack because uh, they have like chocolate and stuff in them. That's yeah, that's true. 
And some of them, like they have got like the yogurt stuff in there too, the dehydrated yogurt or whatever. Yeah. Did y'all ever eat grape nuts? Unfortunately, yeah. My mom used to love them. Like I, I would eat them a lot as a kid. I don't know why, and I still like find myself every now and then I have this bizarre. I think maybe it's my Catholic upbringing and my my drive for self torture or something that I just Mm. occasionally want to go back have a bowl of grape nuts and then I'm like, no, I don't want to eat rocks, so I'm going to pass on that. (laughs) As soon as you get two bites into there, not even like I I could pass the box up on the shelf at this point in my life. Like, "Mm -mm, nope, (laughs) ah, fool me, fool me once. Oh, this is a bit random, but I did finish the ice shirt the other day. Oh yeah, what'd you think? I liked it a lot. Um, I probably like the the parts set in like the modern day a little bit more than the ones in the past. I mean, they're shorter. I found my attention wandering a little bit less. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm curious to. I I got Fathers and Crows. Um, I don't know what I'm going to start it because as as dense as Ice Shirt was, Fathers and Crows is like three times longer. So it's that's a real commitment. I think I I don't think I've ever come across a Bowman book in the wild. I I haven't either. Like I check every time I go to half price books, I check there's never anything there. Um our Andy bookstores here never have his stuff. Our Barnes and Noble here never has it. I had to go to I don't even remember where I got Fathers and Crows online. The only one that I've ever encountered is is Europe Central. I've seen Europe Central a fair number of times at Barnes and Noble. Um but that's pretty much it. For some reason, I've seen Europe Central and Rainbow Stories. I just yeah, those are the ones. At used stores or I, new? No, these are new. Huh. I I just presume that the university here has someone who teaches. Ah. Uh, otherwise, I can't think of why Rainbow Stories would get that attention. That could be. Oh man, I'm excited for the start of the next semester. Not because it'll mean that I'm super busy at work again. But because I work across the street from the college bookstore and I can go see what critical resources they have for sale nice. for the English classes on campus. What was the like most rare or like most interesting vinyl that you guys bought during your time there? Uh, so we we didn't have a lot of records until around the time I was leaving. It was a lot of a lot more of it was CDs. Mm. Um, I would say the rarest CD we bought, and I ended up buying it for myself because it was it was one that we didn't have in our system. Our inventory system ran through Amazon. So if Amazon didn't have a listing for it, we had to manually put it in, which for me meant a lot of times jumping on Discogs and trying to suss out like what's a fair price for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, someone brought in, I don't know if you ever heard of Ambugalard, Jordy White's old band from before Marilyn Manson. Um, no <laughs> yeah they so they brought in one of those on cd and it was like this old i think it was from like 89 or 90 maybe even 91 uh way before he was in manson and i recognized it because it like i i knew enough of you know manson and nine inch nails and all those you know backstories and, and bands they were in before then so i knew the band and i was like that's one i'll probably never see um and I couldn't find it anywhere to like properly batch it into the system. So I, I paid the dude, like I think it was like 50 cents for that one and whatever else he brought in. 
um, when I ended up selling off my records and CDs and everything several years ago, that particular CD, I think I got $200 for it. Dang. Yeah. We got a couple of stuff. Like there was people would bring in stuff sometimes that we, for a number of reasons, couldn't buy. Whether it was too damaged, or if it was something that we had too many in stock of, or if it was just something that we couldn't care. Like before, we could actually buy records. People would bring in records, and we couldn't take them. So sometimes it would just be like, I don't care. You guys can have them. So that's how I built up a lot of my record collection. Was just people uh, bringing sure. in records that they didn't want to have to take them somewhere else, so they just dumped them off with us. So. I picked up a couple of Metallica records that way. And um, I I think I got a couple of Sonic Youth albums from there. We had a guy one time that brought in, I felt so bad for the dude because he was, he brought in, it was like eight or nine pretty hefty sized boxes. And his, um, his, something happened. I don't remember. Someone in his family died and he had to, he couldn't cover the funeral costs. And so he was basically selling off his entire collection to pay for that and i i I felt real bad because it was a lot of good stuff and so i made sure to like i told everyone that was there i was like don't screw this dude like give him as much as we can give him for everything he's got like i feel for the dude um but yeah that was he brought in a ton of really cool stuff i ended up buying a lot of it there's a record store on the same block as me, which is a dangerous proposition. Um, <laughs> Bet. And they have an unopened first pressing of washing machine on the wall. A vinyl or a CD? Vinyl, um, which is that crazy That was one to me. I never find. That's my favorite Sonic Youth album, too. Yeah, the fact that it's unopened is wild. Like That's so... Uh, how much yeah. are they asking for it? $140. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and they also have like the four disc deluxe edition of um, Goo as well. Yeah, I had both uh, Goo and Dirty. I had the deluxe editions of and Daydream Nation. I had those on vinyl. I had a lot of a lot of Sonic Youth. That was like my main Sonic Youth and Nine Inch Nails were probably the two artists that I had the most of in my collection. I almost had every Halo for Nine Inch Nails. I, there was like two I was missing. I think. Oh, nice. I sold almost all of it to one dude in Colorado. <laughs> that's a, that's a lucky that's a lucky break. Yeah, he I listed it up all on Discogs, and I got an email from him like the day after I had it all listed. He's like, "Hey, I want all of this. Can you like help me out with shipping?" I was like, "Hell yeah, dude!" So nice. Yeah, I ended up sending him. I think it was like four or five hundred dollars worth of records. Very cool. Yeah, I don't. I don't have much Sonic Youth or Nine Inch Nails. I have. Uh, I've got Goo. I've got Sister. I've got Rather Sister Ripped. Um, Nine Inch Nails. I have the first two records, and I've got the not the actual events EP. Mm. Um, the bands that I have the most of, King Gizzard is by far the largest. Sure, sure. That I have of any one artist. Um, I think I have like, like close to 60 discs Damn. of king gizzard i don't have any repeats it's just all their live stuff is is yeah huge There's i have so like all of the boxes right? i have every bootleg that they've released um <laughs> and i think the ocs is the band that i have the second most of um and then it's probably either zappa or i had a lot of zappa too or the black keys 
are the two like next most. I had the mailman uh, almost ruined a, a really rare Nine Inch Nails record that I ordered a long time ago when I was, uh, at the time I was living at my mother-in-law's house and I ordered, I scored a copy on eBay of, of the Fragile, of first edition vinyl of Fragile for like 50 bucks before they ever reissued it. So it was like super duper hard to find. Um, the mailman decided to leave it tied. I, I don't know why he took the effort to tie it to the mailbox, which was a, a <laughs> pipe, a pipe that my mother-in-law has is, is that functions as a mailbox in the middle of Texas summer. And it like, I just happened to come back home, like maybe 30 minutes after he'd put it out there and managed to grab it in time. But I was like, Jesus, if that had sat out there for any longer, it would have been totally ruined. Yeah, who knows? That's crazy. <clears throat> yeah, the the reissues of the fragile are also pretty expensive Those are, too. Yeah, he they didn't do many of them. Um, that was one that was that was probably the hardest album for me to part with when I sold all my stuff. Understandable. I almost kept it to frame it, but then I was I realized that I don't. I'd have to find a weird frame to fit a three LP vinyl. So, yeah, those are a bit thicker. Oh, did you pick up that copy of Infinite Jest, Cody, or no? No, I, I was telling Kate I had to go. <laughs> uh, we were killing time before my son's Taekwondo belt test. And so I was like, I'll go back and pick it up. I was going to pick it up and mail it over to her. Um, but then they closed before we could get back over there. So, and then my wife was going to be in that part of town today, but she ended up not being in that part of town. So I may be over there tomorrow. I'll see if they still have it. I, I had a first edition that I inherited, but I uh, I sold it a year or two ago. Was it first edition, first printing with the Volman misspelling? I, wa- I don't remember necessarily. I, I want to say it was. It did have a remainder mark on it. Um, and it wasn't in like, it was in like good condition, but not like, you know, it wasn't like super good condition. Nice. Yeah, I, I was One telling Cody... Cody, I have a first edition third printing, but I haven't found a first edition first printing yet. At one point, I owned like three editions of three copies of Infinite Jest because like, I inherited like two of them and I already had one. Just ridiculous <laughs> to have that many. I have more than that. I have, I think, four copies of Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah, I have, I have, uh, I have four copies right now. I'm trying to sell some of them because I'm trying to make myself kind of cut back which editions do you have i might be interested in buying one or two uh, i have the picador edition i have the 1987 viking one um i have the mass market um and then i have that first edition first printing i picked up off ebay a while ago which picador one do you have is it the one with the the rocket in the legs no, on the bottom it's, half? it's the one with like the, the or is like, that cool like skull one. It's that cool skull one, yeah. Oh, I love, never have found the, one of those. I used to have the missile with the legs one, and I I don't know whatever happened to it. It just disappeared. Yeah, that one looks really cool. But yeah, the Viking one, like the the um the cover is like taped on. I bought it for like five bucks at price Books. Uh, the one from nineteen eighty seven, which is like a facsimile of the of the of the nineteen seventy three. Mm-hmm. And then the mass market's not in good condition at all. Is the mass market one the gold one? 
Yeah. Gold cover. I have one of those too. Yeah, I just have the one of the Frank Miller cover art. That was the, the first one I got. The, yeah, the, I had the, the corrected edition, I should say, after they fixed yeah. the pagination issue. I had that one, but like the cover was basically fell off, and then I sold it on back when I had an Etsy store. I'd really love to find the the Penguin Modern Classics one with the the blueprint on the front. That one took me a while to find. Yeah, I've never seen that one in the wild. That one, I actually there was a while where I found a few of them at Barn, at, Barn, at Half Price Books. Um, the one I have is from there, and I, I think it was like eight bucks. Oh, nice. I just ordered on Etsy um, the mass market paperback of V, the one with that the giant stone V on the cover. Um, That's a great cover. Yeah, I love that cover. And the the seller is in Madison, so I emailed him and I was like, "Do you just do local pickup?" And he's like, "Nah, but I'll send it to you for free." And I got the shipping notification this morning. He's sending it through DHL. What and, the hell? And, and his, his address is like within walking distance of my house. Oh my god! It's like, dude, why? He might. Precious he might. Cargo. I mean. You might want to do that just so there's like a, a ship, like so you can't be like, oh, I never got the book or That's whatever. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I've done some of that in Dallas with like I've just dropped it off at people's houses. I did that when I lived in the Austin area too, but I was always worried that they would try to screw me. Yeah, I have. I took the chance, but but yeah, I don't have the big stone V one, but I do have the one with the like the three faces on cubes and the woman standing behind it. I don't know if I know what that one looks like. Yeah, uh, I, I I found that one that you bought, Kate, the one with the stone V on the cover. I found that at Half Price Books for like five bucks the other day. Nice. That's the one I have. Yes. What, so what copies of Vineland are you all working with? I have the Minerva edition. I have the Penguin one as well, but cover. the Minerva one is the, the one I wanted to get for a long time because I like the cover on it. Yeah, I have the one with like the trees on it, which I really like. The hardback or the paperback? The paperback. Yeah, I think that's probably the same one I have too. The really Penguin like Modern the Classics one? Yeah. Yeah. Mine's a Penguin. Yeah, I don't know if it's a Modern Classics or not. But If it has a turquoise spine, it is Modern Classics. Yeah. Okay, mine's just green, I think. It might be, I don't, I guess it could be turquoise. I don't know. Like seafoam, is it is it seafoam salad green? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then that's the modern classics one. Yeah, I think almost all of them have that. Yeah, that's and, penguins like color for that series. Does the the copy of V that you're getting, um, does that include the uncorrected or corrected um, text in there? I don't actually know. I, I'm not as familiar with the V printings as um. As probably a lot of other people are. As far as I know, the one I have, I, I know for sure the one I have is is the the quote unquote corrected one, because um, that's why I was seeking it out for a long time. But I, I, in reading about it, it seems like it was the the mass market paperbacks that were out of the U.S. are the the corrected ones. So I'm curious if that's the same for that one you ordered. Yeah, we'll have to figure out which one we're reading when we get to. Well, that. that's kind of the thing is I I was gonna when we get to that. I wanted to include a conversation about those changes and how impactful they actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I, I think that would be an interesting thing because a lot of people can't 
find those copies of it and the the resources I found where it explains the the differences in them. Um, it just kind of gives it, you know, that specific line and what's, you know, what's different between the two versions. But I think, you know, having the context of reading the rest of it before and after probably adds something to that. I haven't experimented with it yet. So, yeah, I mean, because the the Harper Perennial Modern Classics one that you can find in most stores, that's the corrected text, right? I think it's. I don't think any of the U.S. versions, aside from the mass market paperbacks, are the the quote unquote corrected versions. Okay. It's a weird. It was a weird thing where they. Uh, okay, so in 2012 it emerged there were multiple versions of V in circulation. This was due to the fact that Pinchon's final modifications were made after the first edition was printed and thus were only implemented in the British or Jonathan Cape edition and the Bantam paperback. The fact was forgotten soon after in the U.S., so most U.S. editions, including the new release, new re- ah, newly released ebook, follow the first printing and are therefore unauthorized versions of the text, while the British editions, which followed the first edition printed by Jonathan Cape, contain Pinchon's final revisions. So I have a sidebar question for the Texans here. Uh-oh. Or Texans by association, however you view yourselves. I'll set this one out. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm giving Luke some wiggle room. Maybe he doesn't embrace it. (laughs) But uh, so the Rudys that have made it over here have almost this construction. You know, of course, they have modern ventilation and like, therefore, the fumes do not fill the buildings. But they are mostly built with the pit almost in the middle of all of the eating areas. Is that is that a thing that's. Uh, I'm all over there too. First of all, I I didn't know Rudy's extended all the way out there. Um, I guess it kind of makes sense, but um, yeah, it's it's uh it's not uncommon from the ones I've gone to. I think it kind of depends on on where you're going because a lot of the more rustic barbecue places I've been uh tend to if they're not if they're not set up with the the pit in the middle. It's set up in such a way that it it's uh, almost a featured area. It's not set up like a normal kitchen would be unless they've converted it from an older restaurant. Um, a lot of times it's kind of made to be the focal point uh, around which, you know, you want people to be able to see um, what's happening and to make sure that the smells, the smoke is getting around and, and, um, and being experienced by everyone. I've definitely been in some smoky ass barbecue places before. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's usually um, the best ones. They really, truly are, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, I, I mean, and I'll, I will. Rudy's is not bad. Um, it's not great. It isn't bad it, though. No, I would the hate say is too much. As as a, as a native Texan who's I've been here my whole life, it's I, I apply the same rule to barbecue places that I do to um, Mexican and Tex-Mex places. The um, the more kind of hole in the wall places are your best bet. The more it feels like it's just someone's house that they've converted into a restaurant, that's going to be your your go to place. <laughs> yeah, uh, to go back to Will's original question, I uh, there are barbecue places here in Dallas that the barbecue pits are generally visible. Um, I don't know about them being in the center of the restaurant, but they are all, almost always visible. Um, I a lot of places here will do the more famous ones at least will do. Uh, tours uh, of the barbecue pits and stuff like for tourists um, 
there definitely does seem to be an emphasis on making the making the barbecue pits visible and uh, accessible to the people eating there. Um, that definitely does seem to be a thing. And yeah, Rudy's they have Rudy's in Colorado even too. That's wild. Because yeah. that the first one was was opened here in San Antonio, um, and it's just kind of exploded since then. What's weirder to me is that they they turn them into like they have you can buy gas at Rudy's. Really? What? There's one. Yeah, there's one, at least one here in Dallas that you could. That's also a gas station. That's wild. I think the one in Colorado too. You can buy gas at it. Yeah, I've only been to the ones here, and then the the like the first one in San Antonio. That's crazy. I will also say the. A good way to know it's a good barbecue place is if you do not get a plate. If they serve you on a piece of wax paper, you're mm-hmm. in the right place. Mm-hmm. Or if there's like a slice of like white bread underneath all of the yep. Yep. the food. Okay, so I was thinking during our little our little break. I think mm-hmm. what what this chapter specifically reminds me of, uh, and this I maybe just putting two things together that have no business going together. Um, it's, I, it's got me thinking of episode eight of season three of Twin Peaks. And it's the... <laughs> okay. The absolute density of it and, and all of everything happening and how pivotal all of it is to the story and how almost impenetrable it is, no matter how many times I go back to it. There's like there's still so much of that episode that I just can't wrap my head around. Um, but it's I know it's all vital to the story. There's the surface level reading or the surface level watching of it and understanding the the impact of the atomic bomb and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like there's so much more when you get into the 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 giant and um, everything in the in the fireman's house and all. Like, there's just so much happening. Um, that's what this had me thinking of was was that particular episode of that yeah that's not a bad reference now i need to go back and just rewatch twin peaks again because i love that show this is the whole show i i watch it like once a year at least so. the whole thing you sit through episodes like seven to 13 of season two yeah, they're not I the can't. best. I can't, man. It's hard. I I tend to drift away, especially with the like the James subplot where he got Yeah, give like, me a kidnapped. fucking break. Just it's it, it sucks because I know it wasn't Lynch's fault. I know nope. the studio really shot itself in the foot forcing forcing Lynch and Frost to reveal a killer when that was never the intention. Mm-hmm. Um and then you know it it really like it's a it's a miracle they they got back on track by the end and and were able to bring in the whole Wyndham Earl subplot and everything and and really bring it back to form mm-hmm. but yeah it I, season two gets a lot of undue flack I don't think as a whole it's as bad as people like to say it is but those six seven episodes in the middle are not good really at all oh yeah i skip totally them. lost away I, I sat through them once i cannot do it again it's yeah i usually if i'm re-watching it like i said i'll just kind of zone out during those or I, if i'm if i'm watching it while i'm working i tend to focus less on it um but 
I don't know. It's one of the Twin Peaks is one of the shows that I do. I, I'll just rewatch over and over. Not necessarily like sit down and like really devote all my attention to it. Rewatch. I do sometimes, but more often than not, it's just something to have on while I'm working that's familiar that I can just kind of still pick up little pieces of. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I just I just rewatched The Wire again for probably the fifth or sixth time. That's not an inconsiderable amount of television to watch six times. No, I love that show. I've never that's seen another it. one that the the studio destroyed it in the end. But you've never seen it? No. Oh, it's it's absolutely incredible. Um, it's. I don't know. I can only say just go watch it because it's it's really 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 good. It's it's supremely well done. It doesn't pull any punches with its storytelling and its depiction of uh both the police and the the drug trade and how both sides were responsible for everything that happened to Baltimore and in a larger in a larger scale the the country really, but performances are amazing. The show's great. Yeah, it it's definitely cool. sounds interesting. Also, I have a confession to make. Uh-oh. I uh, This has been a while since y'all have talked about this in the chat, but I, I do have to confess that I, I do enjoy the musical stylings of uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, yeah. But you're not, the, yeah. you're not one of the fans that only listens to Red Hot Chili Peppers, so I think that's no. the distinction that needs to be made and, there. Yeah, and I definitely, like, they just have some deeper cuts that are good. I'm not like unequivocally a fan. It's just they have some songs, like probably like ten to fifteen songs I really like. Yeah, I could. I mean, I could name a few that I like. Um, but it's just no. It's just one of those bands that I just never gelled with. But I, my issue with them, I guess, it's not really with them necessarily, but it's the fandom. the The people that only like them are pretty insufferable. Yeah. And what band is this? Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, yeah. Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) I can think of I can think of worse fan bases, but Mm -hmm. they're up there. I would say Dave Matthews band fans are probably worse. Yeah, that's for sure. Kid Rock is pretty. Yeah, that's rough. Yep. That's yeah, that's a. mm. Kid Rock makes music for people who need to blow into a tube to start their car. 